This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. discussion of guns on the radio, on television, in real life, it engenders such passion. And what so often happens is one of the key reasons that I don't generally talk about guns is you have people whose views, many of whom anyway, are already firmly cast in stone and they stick their fingers in their ear and they don't want to hear what anybody else has to say that has a contrary view. Now, that has changed a little bit, I think, over the years. You're starting to see broad consensus on things like uh, background checks. You're starting to see uh, broad consensus on things like keeping guns away from mentally ill people. But, uh, But by and large, people have very strong, dug in positions, and they don't tend to want to discuss the issue. They love to argue the issue. They don't tend to like to discuss it and genuinely learn from the people that they're talking to. Well, wherever you fall on the gun debate, whether you think every household should have a mandatory machine gun or you think that uh, guns really shouldn't be owned by civilians, wherever you come down, You have uh, 20 AR-15s in your closet right now. You're sleeping with a uh, Walther PPK under your your pillow. Or you would just have your knees buckle if someone ever asked you to hold a gun. One thing that I think we can recognize is that a big problem with gun violence today. Well, first, I think we can recognize that gun violence is a problem in America. You look at America's cities, you look at uh, uh, the whole country. We've got a problem with gun violence, right? And now the question always becomes, what do you do about it and how did we get there? Well, one of the things that I think a lot of people recognize is that it's not generally, and this is, this is a bit of an exaggeration, but it's, I think what I'm about to say is accurate. It's not generally the legal gun owner that's responsible for... Uh, committing gun crimes. It's usually someone that gets a stolen gun or something along those lines. Then one of the key reasons I don't have a gun in my house is because I am terrified, even with taking every precaution that you can, I am terrified of an accident that could involve a child or someone else. And I have seen that time and again. My um, my uncle, his stepson, killed himself with one of my uncle's guns. And uh, that I was already not really wanting to have a gun in my house, but that really made me so much less likely to do that. You talk about the problem with gun homicide, robberies, drive-by shootings, and very often suicides. So often the problem is someone gets a hold of someone else's gun. A gun is manufactured and purchased legally, and then somehow 
that gun falls into the wrong hands. Well, that's one of the reasons I think that what's happening now is so interesting and so exciting. And I'm waiting to hear the flaw in my logic, but I'm going to tell you about this. A new smart gun designed to protect children from unwanted access to firearms is set to become available by the end of this year. BioFire Technologies announced the new 9mm handgun, which uses fingerprint and facial recognition biometrics to ensure only authorized users can fire it. The BioFire smart gun is designed to prevent firearm-related accidents, homicides, and suicides, which are now the leading cause of death for American children. According to one study, more than 40% of American children whose parents believe their guns are secured said they could access those guns within two hours. Can you imagine? Let's take a look at the state of Colorado. While one in eight middle and high school students in Colorado say they can access a loaded firearm within 10 minutes. To me, this is one of the best uses of technology that I can think of. If you're a legal, responsible gun owner, why shouldn't you be able to have a gun for home protection or for hunting or for whatever the case may be? And why shouldn't you be able to use technology? I I have been actually saying for years that we needed something like this. Use technology to make sure that you're the only one that fires your gun. That if your gun, uh, we've seen that with a lot of law enforcement people, unfortunately, FBI agents and even some police officers, they misplace or mishandle their gun. That gun could fall into the wrong hands. Why should some crook who gets a hold of... someone else's gun, be able to use that to commit a crime or to menace someone. I am hoping that this smart gun technology gets widely utilized, gets expanded, and embraced by people. Now, I'm waiting to hear, what's the problem with this? Anybody opposed to this? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Because if this works, and I don't have stock in this company, this company's not an advertiser, I don't know anything about this company, but if this works, I think you could see other companies do the same thing with the guns that they're manufacturing. And why shouldn't they? You wouldn't see, you remember that uh, horrible situation with that young man uh, who carried out the Sandy Hook shooting in Newtown, Connecticut. The you wouldn't see someone be able to get access to their mother's gun and carry out a mass shooting. You wouldn't be able to see a situation like my uncle's uh, stepson who got into his guns and killed himself. You I think this is wonderful news. And I hope this is a piece of technology and a process that lives up to what it's cracked up to be and that America adopts widely. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Scott, the um, uh, Kai Klopfer, the founder and CEO of BioFire 
spoke to Bloomberg about why he invented the smart handgun. I was fortunate enough to not have to think about gun violence or gun deaths, and that was really my first sort of encounter with the topic, right? I was just starting to grow up, just starting to think about these kind of topics as a 15-year-old and really starting to think about how, how could we do something about this. So BioFire says that for authorized gun users, the shooting experience is seamless, and the biometric data never leaves the handgun. If you want to use my phone right now, you need either my fingerprint or my PIN number. Think about that. Now, I don't think that's unique to me. My wife has the same thing on her phone. Almost everybody that I know that has a smartphone has a situation where you have to either enter your PIN number or use a fingerprint. Why shouldn't that same technology, or maybe even a little bit more advanced, as appears to be the case here, be the case for handguns? So the shooting experience is seamless if it's your fingerprint and your biometric data. The firearm immediately locks when it leaves an authorized user's hand. And then there are integrated infrared sensors in the grip that keep the firearm armed while an authorized user is holding the gun, removing a need to continuously authenticate their biometrics. It also comes with a high-resolution touchscreen allowing the owner to add and remove authorized users. 64 customizable options are also to be available for the gun, which can be sold in left or right-hand models. I have to tell you, I think this is pretty exciting. And I would actually consider purchasing one of these guns. What do you think? So this approach is novel, but it's applying high-precision engineering principles to make a meaningful impact on preventable firearm deaths among people in general, but especially among children. And I don't know why this hasn't been tried before. Maybe it has, and it didn't work out. But they are offering the most technologically advanced consumer of firearm the industry's ever seen. And I think it's pretty exciting. Now, who knows? Maybe the first people to get these will say it doesn't work. It's not as good as it's cracked up to be. But I think this is exactly the kind of thing that we should be embracing. So uh, that the CEO had also said the bio firearm, the bio fire smart gun shoots like any high quality firearm. But it also feels like you're holding the future in your hand. This is a new era in firearm safety driven by ambition and optimism and motivated by the idea that we can really help save people's lives. I can't think of a better use of technology. And I'd love to see maybe police departments start implementing this. I mean, think of the possibilities if this works for the military, for police departments, for consumer-sold weapons, for hunting rifles. I really do think this could be a global game changer. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me begin with uh, Steve in Elmont. Hello, Steve. How you doing, Frank? Um, I kind of, I uh, agree with the, uh, with the idea, but we have to be very careful. You know, Stephen Hawkins has also mentioned that AI can be a great thing for us or pretty much the end. And we're relying too much on, 
technology to make the decisions that we should be making. Um, in Japan, you have to get your gun, I believe you have to get your gun registered every year, just kind of like what we do with our cars. So why don't we start pretty much, you know, making sure that every year you are an upstanding citizen and that you're well, um, there's a lot. Par. There's a lot of people that have proposed that. Uh, that is very controversial, and, and I don't see. So you'd have to have some major legislative changes in order for that to happen. And realistically, given where we've been with the gun debate in this country, I don't see that happening anytime soon. I, I'm open to a discussion about it, but I don't see any any uh, that happening anytime soon because. So many gun owners in America are concerned that that could lead to gun confiscation down the line or something along those lines. This is something that wouldn't require any change in law at all. People could go just go out and buy this thing. More manufacturers could use this technology. Police departments could use it for firearms that their officers carry. This is something that could be implemented without any sort of lengthy debate at all. But your point's well taken, though, Steve. I get it. Thank you. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Tell me what you think about this new idea of smart guns. Is this the future or you remember, you know, I'm always leery of things that are supposed to change the world, right? Remember when we were told that the Segway was going to change the world? And what did it turn out to be? It turned out to be a scooter, right? I mean, it was very hyped up as the the, the piece of technology that was going to change the world. Eh, people kind of, uh, they don't really react to it. But sometimes something that's hailed as a, a piece of world-changing technology, like the iPod or the iPhone or YouTube. Sometimes it is. And I think this might be. 800 Jimmy is in Bayside. Hello, Jimmy. Hey, how you doing? What you've got to watch out for is the idiot who shoots himself in the foot. Never mind the smart gun. Well, I don't disagree with you there, but isn't that still a possibility with the way firearms are now? Well, what's worse than that is people who have no money and are running around with guns. Those are the ones. What you say there, Jimmy? Any one of these people you see going around killing people, I guarantee you their bank accounts all read zero. There's your answer. Never mind the smart gun. You got a nation full of people who got no money and you got open borders making pressures worse. Yeah, thank you, Jimmy. I I don't see us being able to end the poverty debate in this country right now. I don't see us being able to change the, uh, you know, the situation with people um, dealing with uh, financial struggles. And you're right in the fact that if you're poor, you're more likely to turn to Selling drugs, getting involved in gangs, you're more likely to be a criminal, you're more likely to go out and rob someone than if you're uh, upper middle class. But that still doesn't deal with all the accidental firearm deaths that I'm talking about. And all the people like the situation with the general, the young man in Connecticut who got a hold of his mother's gun. The mother's gun was purchased legally. The mother had a right to have that gun. And he got access to it, and he went out and committed a a shooting spree among children. So what you're talking about, the financial aspect of it, it wouldn't have changed what happened at Sandy Hook at all if the 
weapon that Adam Lanza had used at Sandy Hook had this kind of technology, then it wouldn't have happened. And to me, think of all those children that would be alive today. But for that, um, I, I think of all the lives this could save. I find this incredibly exciting. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And I'll get an action-packed show for you. We're going to take a look back at the year 1966. David Krell, a terrific journalist, author, and historian, has a new book out uh, called Do You Believe in Magic? Baseball and America in the Groundbreaking Year of 1966. He's going to join me next hour. I am pumped. One of my favorite guests to talk about anything with, William Burns, is going to be here. The only thing I regret with William Burns is that I didn't book him for a full hour because there's so many issues to talk with him about that um, he's just and he's so substantive and so interesting and such a great storyteller, both on the written, the written word and verbally that I could talk with him for five hours. But he'll join us again next hour, and then we'll do something again with him maybe maybe the following week or something. 800-848-9222. Seamus is in Massapequa. Hello, Seamus. Hey, Frank. What do you call it? The only problem I can see with this small gun, I think it's a great idea, but I know a lot of people would have a problem with it because the government then could maybe shut everybody's guns down. Right, okay. Uh, yeah, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. I guess people could be... Um, I could be concerned about that. But I guess, you know, so many of these people all have smartphones. Couldn't they do that with everybody's smartphone as well? Yeah, but you're not going to use your phone to defend yourself against the government. Yeah, the that's true. That you have the Second Amendment is to really to fight the government, not to fight to shoot deer or anything like that. That's what it's for. And if the government could suddenly one day just decide, let's shut everybody's guns off today and that's it. Yeah, um, well, I guess I guess that's a legitimate concern, and that's one that I hadn't thought of, uh, Seamus. Thank you, but I would still risk that over risking um, someone getting access to a firearm that shouldn't have access to it. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Mike is in. You know, we'll continue with your calls in a moment. Uh, take a quick break, and we'll continue with your calls at eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
So fresh, so clean by Outcast. If you ever want to know what kind of music we are playing on this program, you can absolutely join our Facebook group. Just go on to Facebook and search Moreno Radio Fans and Haters. That's uh, M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. Hey, you know, what do you do when you visit somewhere, right? I mean... Years ago, there was really very few options. You could stay at a hotel, or you could stay at a bed. Uh, 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 you could stay at a bed and breakfast. You could stay if you wanted to do it on a, sort of cheaply. You could stay at a hostel, or you could stay with uh, a friend or a friend of a friend. Right? If you're Lin Manuel Miranda's cousin, you want to stay with Larry David. But there is something that folks are saying could be the future of. Traveling cheaply. Uh, you ever stay at an Airbnb? Now, I enjoy Airbnbs. We just I just stayed at one last weekend in uh, in Georgia. And I have done it many times, many times. And I generally have a pretty good experience. We rent houses in Cape May. Um, I don't know if we do that through Airbnb or another service. There, there are other services that you can use, VRBO. I've, re- I've done it in Atlantic City. I've done it in all sorts of places. And it's great. But it can, it used to be pretty inexpensive. Now it's getting pretty costly. So they've come up with something that I think is so interesting. And I'm curious if you think this is going to take off. It is a house swapping platform. Did you ever see the movie? The Holiday, because that was the first thing that came to my mind. It's not a bad film. It's a cute film. Eli Wallach is great in it as one of his uh, later roles. But uh, Claire, uh, you had um, uh, Jude Law in it. Uh, you had uh, uh, Kate Winslet in it. Cameron Diaz. Good cast. It's cute. It's a cute kind of Christmas movie. And it's about a British woman and a California woman that swap houses because they both need a break from what's going on in their lives, and they need a change of pace. It's cute, but I never really knew anyone that really did that. Well, now, instead of scouring travel sites for the best hotel deals, what if you just switched houses for a few days? And that is the idea behind something called Kindred, a members-only home-swapping platform. It's currently available in North America with... Over 2,000 homes participating in over 50 cities. But if you haven't heard about it yet, you're going to hear about it a ton. This is going to be one of the many things that we're the first to tell you about in this program. Because they just raised, according to the tech publication TechCrunch, they just raised $15 million to expand. So you're going to be hearing all about them. You're going to be seeing ads on social media from them, maybe on radio or TV or I don't know. You're going to be hearing about Kindred bigly, okay? So here's how it works. Members who might be homeowners or renters are both hosts and guests in sort of a give-and-get model. For every night that they host, they earn a night in another member's home for free. To trade. They just pay a service fee uh, up to $30 a night and a cleaning fee per stay, saving potentially hundreds in hotel costs 
Frequent users can pay a $600 annual fee for unlimited stays and no service fees. In addition to vetting the members, Kindred adds a lot of personal touches, including complimentary hosting kits, professional photography, cleaning. It it is not a brand new model. As I mentioned, there was that movie, The Holiday. Uh, Home Exchange does something similar. They charge a $175 annual fee. They've been around since the 90s, and they boast a pretty big network of over 450,000 homes around the world. And there's other little niche platforms that do something similar. You have, if people are interested in luxury stays, there's something called Third Home. They claim the average home value is $2.4 million. Okay. There's Trusted House Sitters that matches animal lovers who care for each other's pets in exchange for a free stay. And they all differ significantly from Airbnb or VRBO because those really aren't home-sharing platforms. They're for making money, which could be why they're now saturated with property management companies, and that's been my experience. So one Kindred member, um, you know, I've heard pretty good reviews so far. And I'm curious if you would do this. Did you raise your hand, Matt Blaine? What was that that you were doing just now? Very distracting. Very distracting. I was stretching. Oh, you were stretching. Okay. All right. Um, you think we were in class? I was. Really I, I, yeah, I don't know. Speak. I didn't know what you were doing. I, uh, I, I see this hand come shooting up out of the corner of my eye. Wow, and, I didn't know you were that observant. Yeah, but please. My goodness. Um, all right. Well, since you're now you're now speaking to the audience, do you want to do you want to rent out your home? Not rent out, but trade your home? Oh hell no! No, you're, you're <laughs> not doing kidding this. me. Would you do this? I don't know. I think I might. Yeah. Why not? I mean, it beats paying an Airbnb or a hotel fee. Well, I I I would never go to Airbnb either. I would always just go to a hotel. You you wouldn't go to Airbnb. No, I feel like it's somebody's house. Well, it is someone's house. Exactly. So what's the difference? Well, the well, the difference here, as opposed to Airbnb, is you don't have to pay. That, but that's you got to pay a member's fee, you said, right? No, no. I mean, you, you for unlimited and no service fee, you pay $30 a night, a service fee, um, and a cleaning fee, which is not significant. And that's a lot less than paying $200 a night to stay in a hotel. You know, I got a hotel to go to Long Island when we're going to be at the Talkers uh, Conference, it was an arm and a leg to get a hotel room, not a super nice hotel, decent hotel, for one night. I would love to just be able to borrow someone else's house for the day and not pay anything. I uh, I like this idea, and uh, I think it's actually going to do very, very well. Curious what you think. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. One, if you've tried Home Exchange or one of these other models... How did it work out, But whether you were lending your house or staying in someone else's house? Two, would you ever do this? Would you ever use this site, Kindred, to go on vacation somewhere for free in exchange for letting someone stay in your house? 800-848-9222, 800 you certainly welcome to comment on the, uh, the uh, smart gun situation, if you like, as well. Mike is in Brooklyn. Mike, what's on your mind? Hey, good morning, Frank. Morning. How are you doing? Good. Good. Uh, I got the smart gun. All right. No way. It's uh, it'll never work. Too much. Too many problems could exist with it. Military and the police. Those guns are going to be banged around, and you can't give one gun 
fit one person because if another the, another officer's gun jams or something and he needs the gun, you got to be able to let the other guy use your gun. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, what about for just consumers then? Okay, on the consumer end, well, think about what you said earlier with the um, you need a fingerprint and your code to use your phone. Right. What happens when the battery's dead? You can't use it. Well, but you can't use your I phone. Gotta charge, I got to charge my gun up with my with my cell phone? No, no, it has nothing to do with your cell phone. No, I'm just, no, no, you missed what I was saying. If your battery was dead on your cell phone, you can't use it. Right. Battery in the, in the smart gun is dead. You can't use it. Well, I don't know that there is a, I don't see anything that says there is a chargeable battery in this. There would have to be some sort of battery to read the the, the electronic the powder I, electronics. No, I I don't I don't know that there is. So far, everything I've seen doesn't indicate that it needs to be charged. How else would it hold the power well, to say, read the fingerprint? Let's say it doesn't. Let's say it doesn't need to be charged. Okay, then you still have the problem of the phone getting uh, the phone on BRT, the, the gun getting banged with it with the. Uh, your fingerprint, it's got to read your fingerprint, it's going to get, you know, cracked, broken. Can't use the gun. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that's a little bit of a stretch, Mike. Uh, I, I don't know about that. Thank you. Uh, 800-848-9222. Are you ready to travel cheaply by borrowing someone else's house? If so, I'd like to know about it. And um, if have you ever done this before? Borrowed someone else's house or swapped houses with someone? Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two on Twitter as well at Frank Morano. We are going to go through the mail in a little while. If you want to email me, I am behind on my email. I have been working all day to get through my email, so I will try and get to as many of your emails as possible. But I have this one of my many little I don't know what you call it quirks. One of my many little idiosyncrasies is. I have to go through the emails in the order in which they were received. So right now I am up to an email that I received yesterday at 4.12 p.m. Now I'm probably, I probably have missed a great deal of stuff since 4.12 p.m., but I'm working hard to get there, believe me. But if you want to email me, if we don't get to your email next hour, I'll make an effort to get to it on a future program. Uh, and, and your email will be read on the air. If you don't want me to say your name, say, please just keep me anonymous or, you know, give me a fake name. But uh, if you want to email me and have your comment read on the air, you can do so at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Or you can send me a direct message on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. You know, fella... Um, sent me a message yesterday saying that he's got a personal assistant in India that answers his emails and leaves uh, once the ones he can't answer for him. And that gives him more time to listen to my podcast, which I appreciate. That said, this fellow said he probably wouldn't bother messaging me if he knew that it wasn't actually me responding to him. Well, no, I respond to all these emails, direct messages, whatever else, myself. 800-848-9222. Joe in Queens, you ready to share your house yeah. with somebody? Uh, well, I think there's trust, trust issues. 
you know, you might, I, like, for example, I have an autograph collection that I would, you know, might be that very valuable. Well, I, I would have to lock that away. And then there's energy issues, you know, energetically is that something I'd want to do. So it is interesting that historically, if you look this up, Fritz Peterson and Mike Kekic did a full swap of everything when they were on the Yankees. Yeah, I remember uh, that, including their wives. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that was uh, very controversial or scandalous back then. But I don't know. You you would have to see why people would do it and what their reasons were and what their motivations were. It would be interesting to see why. Well, they're doing it. They're do doing it. it to save money, so that you don't have to pay for an Airbnb or for a hotel. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so the motivation would be financial. Right. Right. Would there be other motivations, though, Frank? Well, besides that. Well, like what? I mean, I, I can't get in the head of a variety. Would there, well, sure, would there yeah. Be, I mean, look, would I, it be just for the sake of a change of venue for a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it certainly could be. I mean, that was the plot of that movie, uh, The Holiday. But I, I think you know, let, let's say you're planning a trip to Italy or to Las Vegas or California or Florida, and you don't necessarily want to plunk down a whole bunch of money for a hotel room or or an Airbnb. This is a way to be able to visit the, these other cities or places and not be able to spend that money. I think it's a very interesting concept. And as far as your concern about about an autograph co- collection, and I can relate, is I have a, a lot of signed books, including from a lot of authors that are no longer living, that uh, I value very kindly, I mean, val- val- prize very highly. I think that I'd be concerned about somebody pilfering one of my collectibles or one of my belongings as well. But that's why you kind of look at the the vetting that the, that this service does for all the members. And you can also look at the history that the member has in previous houses or previous experiences that they've had. And if there are red flags or if somebody doesn't have a good rating, then you don't. You don't necessarily let them stay in your house. Uh, thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Tony is in Indianapolis. Hello, Tony. Hey, how you doing there, brother? I'm hanging in there, Tony. Appreciate you asking. Hey, I, uh, I wanted to elaborate a little more on that smart uh, gun technology, which I wrote a paper on really? when I was in college some time back. And I don't think you're looking at it is so much more to the application. I think there's better way to sell this thing than than what you've told us so far. I think there's more to it. And I think that with that smart technology, the way that I looked at it was is let's supposing there was a struggle and somebody took the officer's gun, they wouldn't be able to use that gun against them. Uh, right. No, it has, I, a, it has an application. It has an application on the battlefield. If a soldier is wounded or killed, the enemy can't pick up his gun and use it. Well, that occurred uh, to me as well. Absolutely. And then with GPS technology, even if you had, let's say, two legal gun owners and a confrontation happened, whether it be between two civilians or an officer, we all know where who was standing, who pulled the trigger mm. first. Do you know what I mean? It takes it eliminates all that he said, I, she said stuff. I, I think that's that. I think you're making the case for why I think this is such a potentially game changing technological application. 
and I think it would be embraced by both sides. I think, you know what, this is the problem that I have. And I'm, I'm a conservative. I believe in the Second Amendment. I'm a, I'm a native New Yorker. I moved out of New York in the mid-'80s and moved to the Midwest. Uh, so, I mean, I've lived in heavily Democratic place, and now I live probably in one of the most red states in the world. But, you know, the thing about it is, is anybody with any common sense is going to tell you whether they're Republican or Democrat, People don't want weapons of war on the street. That's not where the problem lies. The problem lies is when you give something. In other words, if if you get sides to agree, like you get the the Republicans say, okay, we'll go along with eliminating assault rifles or whatever. But the problem is Republicans are afraid, well, we let your toe in the door and next thing the legs in there and we're going to take this. And And I get it. I get it because uh, we've seen that. We've seen that from – uh, when it, the slippery slope argument uh, itself. So, hey, uh, I'd love to read that paper, Tony, if you wanted to email me, but uh, you would buy one of these guns, it sounds like. Absolutely. Yeah, because, so like would I. I said, and, you, and, there's, and, you know, there was a lot of, when I, when I wrote this paper and lectured on it, a lot of people said, well, you know, there's how many millions and millions of guns already out there? Well, you're right. That's a problem. So how do you solve that problem? That's a problem that you you solve over attrition. So what I mean by that is these smart guns, you're also going to have to invent a different ammunition. So no longer will ammunition for these guns that don't have smart technology, you won't be able to get ammunition for them. Hence, you won't even be able to buy parts for them. So as they break and are confiscated and, and whatever happens over a period of time, that's how you eliminate these guns. Yeah, uh, you know what I mean. No, you I, just, I, I just, understand that, Tony. Uh, Tony, it sounds yeah. uh, you're mentioning a couple of great applications that I hadn't mentioned. I'm even more excited after talking to you than I was before. Thank you, Tony. And if you want to send me that paper, uh, email me Frank Morano at wabcradio.com. You know, my friend Tommy is a gun owner. Uh, he's he's listening right now, but he's not in a position to call in. He said he he loves the idea. But there are two possible concerns that he raises. One, cost could prevent those most in need of the technology from being able to purchase it. Okay. Two, dependability. If it fails just once in a time of need, especially in a law enforcement situation. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that can be said of any new gun technology. I mean, I think you have to make sure this stuff is feel is tested often and, and tested a thousand times before a potentially deadly weapon is sold to a consumer. And uh, we have seen guns jam before without this technology. So gun problems are not necessarily anything new. Bruce is in Michigan. Hello, Bruce. Hello. Hello. Yeah, I went out to Los Angeles and did this trade home things uh, for two weeks, and it was wonderful. Uh, So what service did you use, Bruce? Didn't really use a service. So how did you find someone to trade homes with? Um, they have a thing in the paper. That, well, the paper is a digital paper of people wanting to do exactly that. Oh, and it, and it worked out well for you? It was fantastic. My wife didn't want to leave. As a matter of fact, she changed homeowners. <laughs> um, so would um, you think it sounds like this, this Kindred platform has some potential to bring the experience that you guys had to the masses? Well, I don't know about that. Well, why not then? I got a divorce. 
Well, I, I, I caught that. But I don't think the uh, Los Angeles house borrowing situation was at fault, was it? Well, she didn't want to leave. <laughs> Fair enough, Bruce. Thank you. Sorry about that. Uh, but, uh, hey, I guess uh, bar- borrower beware, right? I don't know the Latin for borrower beware, but uh, you could view, view Bruce's experience as an endorsement or a cautionary tale, either one. All right, 800-848-9222. Eight open lines if you want to comment. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The great Eric Clapton with his version of I Shot the Sheriff. Talking about a few issues. This new house borrowing platform, Kindred, which I think they've just raised $15 million. And I think this has the possibility to totally upend the um, hospitality market, tourism, etc., But uh, we'll see what happens. Also talking about this new smart gun technology where these guns are going to be sold this year. And unless someone has your biometric signature and fingerprint, they're not going to be able to fire that gun. I think this is exactly the kind of thing that uh, futurists and people that invent things should be working on. I think this is a home run. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on that. We're going to go through your mail in a little bit. Uh, You could find me, uh, you could send me an email at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. And if you uh, want to find us on Twitter, you can do so at Frank Morano. Still not verified, unfortunately. You know, it's funny. Yesterday I was telling the story about how um, Elon Musk had decided to pay for the verifications of a couple of people, uh, William Shatner, Stephen King, the Pope, a few others. And basically now, yesterday, prominent people who are dead got their blue check marks. Chadwick Boseman, Barbara Walters, Anthony Bourdain, they received a verification badge on Twitter. They're all dead. God love them. That's supposed to be reserved for accounts that pay an $8 a month subscription fee to, for Twitter Blue. A note from the company on their pages 
states that these celebrities have paid for the subscription even though they're not alive. Now, I don't think Barbara Walters' estate has decided that it's such a priority to make sure they pay Twitter to get her verification badge posthumously. But I am uh, trying to get people to retweet a tweet that I put out yesterday, and I'm going to pin it to the top of my page. You can find it at Frank Morano, where I'm asking uh, Elon Musk to verify me without paying, because that's kind of the cool thing now, to be verified but not pay to be verified. That's... Those are the people that matter. It seems like Elon Musk has sort of created the same verification process that he did previously, only it's not really clear how he's deciding who's verified and who's not. So we'll see. I mean, he's still it's I I give him some credit for trying, but um, I think the solution is get 100,000 retweets on that. So you could be a part of the Twitter army. By going to at Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. 800-848-9222. Lou is on Long Island. Hello, Lou. Yes. Uh, in uh, reference to the uh, smart guns, um, the caller said that uh, through attrition, you know, the old guns will just go away and they will just have smart guns. The 1911 45 semi-auto pistol has been made since 1911. 112 years, it's still made today. It's not going away anytime soon. So I don't think that attrition angle is going to work. Yeah, uh, well, look, I don't think there's there's literally millions of guns right now in this country. I don't think they're all going away anytime soon. But I think you're going to see consumers um, potentially embrace this the same way they embraced CDs over records or MP3s over CDs because it's so much more useful in terms of yes, avoiding yes, accidents. But, yes, but how many people have gone back to vinyl? Well, that, that's true. That's true. engineering, they just want a simpler time. Yeah, well, that's you true. Know, things get complicated for a reason that people don't ask for. That's true. People are still buying Bazooka Joe bubblegum, and uh, Bazooka basically relies on nostalgia uh, exclusively, pretty much, to continue to market their product, which has not changed very much in the last few years. You know, by the way, you know know what's somewhat annoying? I thought about this when I was at the ballpark the other day, um, is that you can still buy Cracker Jacks, peanuts and Cracker Jacks. One... There's not a lot of peanuts in the peanuts and cracker jack. Two, they don't give you a prize anymore. Now, when I was growing up, and I'm sure it was even more true 50, 60, 70 years ago, but when I was growing up, they'd give you a pretty cool prize. Maybe a toy, maybe a, a monocle, maybe, I don't know, any number of things. Then they changed it to, I think they give you a joke or a sticker. Now, I don't think they give you anything. If I were put in charge over at uh, Cracker Jack, I would bring back that prize. And I think they'd be able to ride that same nostalgia wave that vinyl is enjoying right now and that uh, Bazooka Bubblegum is enjoying right now. I think that is a home run. All right. Um, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on uh, anything we are discussing 800-848-9222 I'm getting mixed reaction to people who would swap their homes or would not swap their homes but I think 
you know, if you're going to rent your house out for an Airbnb, why wouldn't you let someone stay in there as in exchange for being able to stay somewhere else, a new and exotic location? I think it's pretty cool. I think it's pretty exciting. And uh, I think this is going to do very well. So those are my two. We'll call this the innovation hour. Uh, those are my two hopeful innovations for the future. The the smart gun and kindred. Now, meantime, speaking of technology, I think this is going to be the end of the road for me. I now have a mobile phone which does functionally almost nothing. It can text message. It can mostly go on Facebook. It can take photographs that look decent sometimes. It doesn't do anything. Other than that, on Friday, it was so frustrating because I arrived in Atlanta early. And I thought, all right, it'll give me a chance to, uh, to catch up on some calls. I won't have to figure out how to make small talk with this guy, Larry, who I, I have no idea who he is. So I'll get a chance to make up for some, uh, to make some calls. Wouldn't you know it? As soon as I tried to call anyone, they could hear me. They could hear every word that I was saying, but I couldn't hear them. There was a problem with my receiver. It, they would sound very muffled. Hear them. So I think that um, finally, it's the end of the road. I need the, the, this mo- this mobile phone that I've been using, which I've had for five and a half years, is now functionally a paperweight that can text message. I can barely make phone calls with it. it. It does work when I'm on the Bluetooth in my vehicle, but I can barely make phone calls with it. And then you know what these text messages that I'm getting are? They're mostly people complaining that I haven't called them back. Well, I can't imagine why. But um, so what I was doing on Friday or, or Thursday last week, there were four or five people that had called me. So I put them all, all these people that don't know one another, have nothing to do with one another, all from different parts of the world, all from different walks of life, all different specializations, all wanting to reach me about something else. I put them all on a group text with one another. My wife will tell you one of the things that I do that drives almost all of my friends and family members crazy is I will connect all sorts of people on a group text that have nothing to do with one another except for the one issue that I'm text messaging them about. So I connected all these people, four or five of them, um, on a group text with one another who uh, have nothing in common other than I'm supposed to call them back, but I have no way of doing it. So I did eventually reach everybody, but it was, it was, a, it was frustrating. And then for some reason, four or five hours later, the phone would work again. And then it works for a day, and then it stops working. So I think today is going to be the day. I got an offer. And, and that's the thing is I'm leery of all these offers, but I got an offer, Verizon message, one week only. Get Google Pixel 7 for free or Google Pixel 7 Pro for $5 a month for 36 months when you upgrade on select 5G unlimited plans. So I'm thinking, all right. So now I have to look through all these plans to see if I'm going to upgrade. I'd say, I, I just hate, that's why I don't change phones. But I think today is going to be the day. Get a new phone today. All right. Uh, until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat, spayed or neutered.
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Finish this se- sentence, okay? And Matt Blaze, be ready. I'm going to ask you to be the first guinea pig in this. Um, every child should absolutely learn to blank. Brush their teeth. Is is that that's the big concern? Brushing your teeth. Yeah. The, the children. You think that's a struggle for people to learn? Is that is that a big problem in society? A lot of children and a lot of adults. Have never learned to brush their teeth. Have you ever gone down south? They don't. They, it's because of a lack of knowledge about how to brush their teeth. Yeah, right. big I, problem. I, I don't. Electronic toothbrushes. Why do you think they got invented? People yeah. aren't brushing their teeth properly. But, but is it because they don't know how to brush their teeth? That's why. Not okay. properly. Fair. Okay. What do you think? I mean. All right. It's your answer. Your answer is <laughs> you don't your answer. Think that's, you don't think every child should learn to brush their teeth? No, I, I don't think that that's a big problem. I, I don't think there are a lot of children that say, you know, I would really, I'd brush my teeth if only I could figure out how. I mean, it's not like tying a bow tie or b- uh, blowing a whistle super loudly using your fingers. It's, 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 it's relatively easy. It's kind of self-explanatory. All right, how about- but it's fine. Dial nine one one. Okay, all right. Is that a better answer. I, I, again, it's the kind of thing that, you know, do you see a lot of children say, you know, I wish I knew how to dial nine one one. It's in the <laughs> but title. You, wait, but you said fine. Okay, those are your answers. We'll take. It. <laughs> what you, you said know, was I, I, every I child myself. should learn to fine, fair, blank. fair, fair. <laughs> both good things: brushing your teeth and dialing nine one one. That's like a family I, feud I, I question. Just, I just didn't realize that there was a problem with so many people not knowing how to brush their teeth or dial nine one one. Kenneth, finish my my sentence here. Every child should absolutely learn to blank. Tie their shoes. Tie their shoes. Okay. Yeah, I don't think that's a big priority either, but uh, I I never really, you know, I, I never really tied my shoes much as a kid. I much prefer right, slip right. still to this day. Learn, but it's your answer. Learn how to read. Okay, that's a good one. That's what I figured Matt Blaze was going to say. Fair enough. Okay, that's a good one. Now, we are very fortunate in this country. We have a literacy rate of 98 or 99%. So children are learning to read. However, I have railed for years that there's something that not enough children are learning. And I don't make want to make this a racial issue at all, but it's particularly true in the black community. And this leads to life and death situations. There are far too many children in this country who never learn to swim. And every year, a lot of people, both adults and children, end up dying because they don't know how to swim. I am a big advocate of my son um, learning how to swim. He's got, he's starting swimming lessons next week. And I want him to learn how to swim as early as possible because you 
significantly reduce a whole category of possible death if you don't if you learn how to swim. So that's why there's an elite public high school called Stuyvesant, which is one of the best colleges in not colleges. It could be a college. One of the best high schools in the whole country. And one of the things which they do at Stuyvesant, which I think is great, and I believe they do this at a lot of the elite schools, is they make it so that before you can graduate with honors, you need to learn how to swim. You have to complete a one-semester swim class or pass a swim test. Brilliant. Brilliant. Love it. Why is this controversial? Well, some of the girls who take the course have traditionally opted for an all-girls section. Many of them cite religious guidelines that dictate modesty in dress. Others simply feel uncomfortable wearing a swimsuit around boys. But. After administrators at the school, Stuyvesant High School, eliminated the all-girls classes in favor of co-ed ones, the swimming requirement has become the focus of a debate about how to balance religious accommodations with social integration. The school had stopped offering the all-girls classes last spring, but some Muslim students said they were unaware of the shift until it was widely reported in the newspapers. Administrators said it had become unfeasible to fit the classes into schedules and the classes might have also run afoul of the education department's gender inclusion guidelines. So now they're doing all all co-ed men, women or boys, girls, non-binary. Everyone's taking the same swim classes and a lot of people are unhappy about it. The New York chapter of the Council on American Islamic Relations criticized the shift as disheartening and unacceptable. New York City is home to more than a half a million Muslims and advocates for religious freedom, according to them. Uh, said the, and they say the dispute reflects broader challenges facing some Muslim youth. But I would imagine a lot of Orthodox Jewish students might also be upset about this because I don't think you're able to swim in the same pool as another gender if you're Orthodox Jewish. But don't don't hold me to that. But I seem to recall something about that. But several Muslim students have said they felt their academic goals had been pitted against their religion. And what one 17-year-old student told the New York Times is, it shouldn't matter whether I'm Muslim, Jewish, Christian, if I personally do not feel comfortable. And I kind of I kind of appreciate that perspective. If you prefer more just to be around all girls for a swim class and you don't want boys seeing you in a bathing suit for whatever reason, or you don't want it because you're Muslim or you don't want it because you're Orthodox Jewish, I think maybe you should be able to. I think maybe they should still be forced to offer, and I know they said that that's a violation of the rules now, But I think maybe you should be forced to offer these all-girl and all-boy swimming courses. What do you think? 
800-848-9222. After the outcry, which was uh, reported by the New York uh, New York Post, education department officials said this week that students who need accommodations would soon be able to receive full honors through classes on other life skills. Now, I don't like that either, because what then happens? You're going to have a situation that's precisely the one that I want to avoid, which is you're going to have more students graduating from high school never learning how to swim. I think they should offer all girls courses. I think they should offer all boys courses. If you also want to offer all gender courses, because that's what people want or because that's what you have to do, then so be it. But I don't think there's anything wrong. When I went to gym, we had an all-boys gym class, uh, at least in middle school. In um, And I think even in most of my high school career, that was the case as well. But there was nothing wrong with that. And I, I think whenever you're in a situation where you're um, – where showing parts of your body, whenever you're in the situation where you're potentially changing into something else, sometimes you just feel more comfortable around your own gender, especially as a as a 13 year old, 14 year old, 15 year old with your body going through all sorts of changes and you're self-conscious and you got all these hormones raging. I think they should absolutely schools should still offer these all girl and all boy courses. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Now, the thing, the other aspect of this, and then we're going to talk to Bill Burns in a couple of minutes. The other aspect of this is that just a handful of high schools require swim tests. The mandates used to be prevalent, particularly at uh, colleges and universities. But decades ago, decades ago, for instance, more than one in three treated swimming as an essential life skill that students had to demonstrate to graduate. That's not the case. Many schools have since eliminated this requirement. Some argue they penalize students from low-income backgrounds who are less likely to have learned how to swim as children. Well, you know what other areas of life that lower-income children are, are less advantaged in? Reading. So what's the solution? Do we stop teaching reading? Uh, baseball, dodgeball, you know, all sorts of things that children that have more money grow up with a little bit of a leg up. So that's the solution of some of these schools to not teach swimming and not require swimming. I think the lower income students, because they haven't had access growing up to uh, swimming, they're the folks that are most in need of swimming instruction. Uh, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Students must complete the swim requirement to receive what's known as a Stuyvesant Diploma, a seal on their regular diploma representing the completion of an extensive set of credits beyond what most schools require. Most school students get the seal and some feel pressured to although it doesn't usually carry any extra weight in college admissions. City schools must make reasonable accommodations for students to be able to exercise their religious rights while balancing other factors. I I think they should offer the girls' courses and the boys' courses. I I don't know about you. 800-848-9222. We're going to talk to Bill Burns in just a couple of minutes. Melvin is in the Bronx. Hello, Melvin. 
I agree with you wholeheartedly that they should be single male and single gender. I went to Dewey Kitten High School in 1964. I'm 73 right now. All the past gym class was none, none known as physical education. One has to know how to swim and dread water. I was in the cadet corps at age of nine. I learned how to roll a boat, pitch a tank, and live with the woods. It's all about self-preservation. If you live by the water, you need to learn how to at least dread in that water to hold your head above water. Walton High School has a, a swimming pool in the bottom. So do Dean McClendon. Both the high schools located in the Bronx. But when they went co-ed, it seems like a whole lot of stuff down there. People have lost their mind because their ancestors have a saying. Common sense is not common. And I definitely agree you need to go back to that single male because there are things that males need to sit down and talk to that stay with from the male and things that females need to sit down and talk to that they learn from other females. You know, and when you're in that court sitting and so forth, there are distractions. Melvin, thank you. I, I made out about 80% of what Melvin said, which is a pretty high percentage for me, maybe 90%. And I found myself in total agreement with with what I heard. Now, for all I know, he said something crazy that I didn't fully understand, so I'm hesitant about saying I agreed with all of it. But I agreed with everything I understood. All right, Bill Burns is here. We're going to talk about how our way of life is poisoning us. We're going to talk about how um, the UFO chief at the Pentagon says the alien that it's possible there's an alien mothership in our solar system. We're talking about the debate over climate engineering and if we have time, we'll we'll try and bring up one or two other subjects, although that's quite a bit. Bill Burns joins me straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. For a conversation with Bill Burns. Uh, Bill Burns is a New York Times bestselling author of many books, including The Day After Roswell. He has been 
the publisher of UFO Magazine and the editor of the UFO Encyclopedia, and he has many other claims to fame as well. Technically, he's Dr. Bill Burns, but he's very accomplished in many different areas and one of the best writers around and one of my favorite guests. Bill, it's been way too long. Thanks for joining me on the radio again. Oh, my pleasure. How have you been? Great, Bill. Great. One of the stories uh, that has been on my list to bring up with you has been the Pentagon UFO chief, Sean Kirkpatrick, director of the Pentagon's All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, writing in a research report that an artificial interstellar object could potentially be a parent craft that releases many small probes during its close passage to Earth. So essentially you have a senior Pentagon official saying that an alien mothership could be in our solar system. What was your take on what Sean Kirkpatrick had to say on this front, Bill? I believe that Kirkpatrick was prepping us for a major announcement. I mean, what I think is that this administration, whatever you think of it, has made a decision, and I think it was a decision made during the Obama administration, quite frankly, but they've made a decision that they're going to drip, 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 dribble out to get us to accept the fact that we're not alone in this universe. I mean, I, I think that's the that's the big thing, that it's not as though they're saying, oh, flying saucers are landing like um, this is um, right, invasion of the Earth, yeah. right? But what they're saying is that there are probes and they're coming from um, a mothership that's at the very edge of our solar system. So uh, it's keeping tracks on us, but at the same time has the ability to send probes to do specific things. And, and I think that this is a, a robotic probes, right? Not people, robotic probes. And I think this is a way for the administration, and I think it's a major decision that they're going to disclose this, and they're going to disclose it gradually so that psychologically and socially we accept this fact that we're not alone. Do you think this this rather revealing, pretty bombshell report from Sean Kirkpatrick, do you think this comes directly from Biden? Um, I think, uh, 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 my speculation is this. That Joe Biden and um, Senator Harry Reid were both friends in the Senate for, I mean, decades, right? I mean, Joe Biden's been around since the 70s. Harry Reid's been around since then. Uh, And Harry Reid's state houses Area 51. When, after the Betty and Barney Hill story, right, that's 1961, President Kennedy was so exorcised by two people claiming to be abducted by aliens on the cover of Look magazine, not a magazine cover. And I think that Kennedy, that was one of the reasons Kennedy says we have to go to the moon by the end of the decade. That was one of the reasons. And Kennedy did his own little investigation, and he was so excited about Area 51 that he you know, he had an affair with Marilyn Monroe for years that he and told Marilyn Monroe 
privately in pillow talk that there is an Area 51 that things and folks can read that whole uh, a memo. I'll tell you how they can read it. Um, that there is an Area 51 where objects from outer space have fallen down, and there are little people from outer space living at Area 51. Marilyn Monroe said this when she called Bobby Kennedy at the Justice Department. I mean, how much does RFK Jr. know? When she called Bobby Kennedy at the Justice Department and said she was going to go public with this and blow the whistle on JFK, who told her all the story. And that's one reason why she was killed. But the point is, President Kennedy was so excited about this that he shot his mouth off about our nation's deepest secret winds up getting himself killed, winds up getting Marilyn Monroe killed, but that's one reason we were going to the moon. And quite frankly, given all this turmoil about the presence of extraterrestrials, flying saucers, are they here, not here, what do they want? I think that Harry Reid, knowing what he knows, because we knew we had a live alien at Area 51. He knew that. Um, That he purposely pushed his friend Joe Biden to do whatever he could to release the information. And the first uh, videos, modern videos, were coming out from the Obama administration back in 2011, remember? It's, 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 he's still in office, and we're seeing flying saucers over the Pacific Fleet off San Diego. Well, those were, So I think were, there's a concentrated... Were those the images that came out in the, in the Times on the front page? Because that wasn't until 20, 2017, right? No, no, no. This was this was uh, this was 2011. There were um, images. This this was on the New York Times front page. These were released because people in the UFO community were seeing these videos. I, see. I got it. And, okay. Gotcha. And and were blown away by the fact. I mean, and I still say this: if there is a craft you can't identify, with no wings, no jet engine, no balloon, nothing in the shape of a TikTok hovering over the water and the F-18 Navy Hornets can't get a radar lock on it, you got a problem. And they're laughing about this? The pilots are laughing about Mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, it's so funny. No, I uh, agreed. So you think this is all, just to close the chapter on what Kirkpatrick said, this is all just another attempt by the government to open the Overton window a little bit more to the public accepting that the reactions, the relations that uh, or the visitations that uh, ETs have made to our planet is much more prevalent than we've heretofore known. The answer is yes, but I think it even goes deeper than that. I think and this is again speculation, Frank. This is not sure. Um, I'm not a climate scientist, but my thinking is this: that this planet is in for uh, some terrible experiences. I mean, the glaciers are melting. We know that. That isn't you know. You don't need some senator to tell you that. We know that. We know that the seasons are changing. We know that there are a number of things. And we have overbuilt – let's just talk about um, our, our own cities. We've overbuilt to the point where we are in uh, building on land that's very vulnerable. So the amount of money we're going to have to spend – and I mean serious, serious billions 
we're going to have to spend on mitigating climate damage. And I think that the, uh, the planet is on the edge. And I think that um, the, the, uh, the reason there's a craft circling at the edges of our solar system or, or that these aren't little green men with three eyes, they're us. Maybe a different shape, but they're us. They're humans. And they want to save this planet because they're the ones that first came here. And so I think that we are being prepped for understanding, A, we're not alone in the universe, B, we're part of a larger community, and that community is here to save this planet, or at least save us on this planet. You um, have, in our conversations over the last couple of years, have said a great deal about the possibility that um, a virus could have been sent here or maybe several times throughout the history of this planet to create or destroy new generations of of living beings. Uh, just b- before I ask you about uh, this fascinating op-ed in the um, New York Times Magazine over the weekend, just clarify that point a little bit for folks and uh, clean up what I just said a little bit so it makes sense in their brains as, as good context for this next story that I'm going to ask you about. Okay. At this present day, our society, America, China, Russia, India, Iran, you name it, we are sending robotic craft to the moon and to Mars. China is having a helicopter on, a helicopter on Mars. They're going to bring back material from Mars, see if there's um, DNA in it. We're doing that. If we're doing that now with our technology, consider our colonial overlords, human beings from another part of the universe. Um, Instead of landing on this planet and um, every single day where they're here, but they're sending biological robot crafts. That's what they're sending. And so the the biology is, is in the virus. There is an um, agricultural scientist uh, by the name of Paul Stamets. He's the mushroom guy. And he believed, he's the guy who said that the largest life form on planet Earth is a mushroom mm. that is, that is um, underground, mycelium underground, that covers most of the state of Washington. His theory is that if an advanced alien culture, us, from another part of the universe wanted to transform life on this planet and transform our species. How they would do it would be to send specific viruses into plants, knowing that animals and um, prehistoric humans, Neanderthals, or even earlier than Neanderthals, hominids, would eat these plants, mushrooms, let's say, for example, And they would eat these plants, ingest the viruses, and the viruses would affect their RNA, the messenger RNA, and stimulate evolution in the direction that these creatures wanted. So that's how I think they are terraforming life on distant planets. Mm. So let's just say that this mothership, because they're trying to explain strange comets, This mothership releases things that look like comets, rocks. 
They're covered with water. In the water, there's DNA. And as they pass by certain planets, they may land on the planets. They're spinning. That DNA goes into that planet's ocean or under, or, um, under the surface ocean. And sure enough, it's starting life. That's what happened on planet Earth. And so I think there's a constant formation of life going on as this civilization, us, maybe billions of years old, is trying to terraform other planets, gradually occupying the solar system. Wow. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with New York Times bestselling author Bill Burns. Bill, you were one of the first people I spoke to when I read this column in the New York Times magazine over the weekend by Mark O'Connell, who is an author, but a, a really interesting guy. And I'm actually, I put him on my list of people to invite on this show based on this essay. But basically, the headline is, our way of life is poisoning us. And what O'Connell says, and I'm very interested in this, is I'm drinking from a, a plastic water bottle right now. He says there's plastic in our bodies, it's in our lungs, it's in our bowels, and in the blood that pulses through it. We can't see it and we can't feel it, but it's there. It's there in the water we drink, the food we eat, even in the air that we breathe. Um, How big of a deal is the fact that we are being exposed to so much plastic? And what do you think the ramifications of this might be, particularly given what you just brought to our attention? If I think it's real. I mean, uh, uh, the fact that they, do you know that in human female, in placentas, right, among human females, there are nano shards of plastic in human placentas. They're in umbilical cords. They're in babies that the diaper services figured out that in the diapers, there are microplastics. So they're in babies. So what if part of the theory, I'm not saying it's true. Well, I believe it's true. What if part of the theory is this? Given the fact that the climate around us is changing so drastically, given the fact that um, what we take for granted about the, uh, the cycles of this planet are changing, what if this is not an accident, but Plastics were introduced to this planet, uh, polymers introduced to this planet, and they're taking over in such a way that the human race, I know this is a tough nut to swallow, that the human race is being siliconized. We're becoming silicon creatures, blending our carbon footprint, blending our carbon cells and our and silicon into one creature to better withstand, to withstand better the climate change and the forces that are acting on this planet. In other words, we are becoming plastic. That is absolutely incredible. Just, I mean, even if it's not true, it's an incredible thing to ponder. So, I mean, people might ask about the situation of how, Plastic would be introduced by an alien intelligence of some of some sort of another. But when we think about it, there really wasn't plastic on this planet pre Roswell crash, was there? Exactly. That's the whole point. What there was. Was in the 1930s, 
the film industry developed celluloid acetate, which is basic uh, 1940s film stock. And so some people have said that it was celluloid acetate on the, on the object that crashed in Roswell, and so it was an earthly craft. But the point is, the people, we spoke to one of the people, in fact, folks can see it on the internet if they want to go to UFO hunters. We spoke to one of the people who was there in July 1947 in the debris field. He was an Army sergeant. He was a truck driver, truck maintenance guy. And he said that the soldiers that were doing the collecting on the debris field outside of Roswell were so amazed at what they saw. They were picking up these pieces of, of what they thought was metal, crushing it in their hands, letting it go, and it popped into its original shape. And they had to stick it. He said the funny thing was they were all carrying these big gunny sacks around them, and he said they couldn't stuff the metal into the gunny sacks because every time they released it from their hands, it would expand. And the MPs around the whole debris field were, were actually doubling over laughing, seeing these maintenance guys try to handle this metal. And a few of the people tried to take pieces of this metal and keep it, and they were arrested. So there was an introduction of technology to this planet. And when you look at what happened in the days after Roswell, um, AT&T suddenly pops up with a transistor. After 10 years of trying to find one, suddenly after the crash at Roswell, they pop up with a transistor. We are being seeded. Just like we're soil, we'll be, our planet is being seeded. We've been seeded for 3.5 billion years, and I think that very gradually, over the next century, because by the end of this century, Frank, I mean, I'm thinking about my grandchildren now. By at least the 2070s, according to plant virologists and according to um, people who study the soil, Agricultural experts, the soil on this planet will not be able to grow crops. We'll, people will be eating seaweed or they'll be eating artificial stuff because we've so depleted the soil by, by goosing it up to make more plants, big, far, um, big agriculture, that we've depleted the soil. So our planet is, this century We'll be going through some very dramatic changes from the point of view of climate, from the point of view of the ability of the soil to um, be harvested for plants, for food. So I believe we are being prepared as a culture for what's going to happen to us this century. That's uh, absolutely amazing and and pretty frightening, um, especially when you think about it, that every piece of plastic that's ever been manufactured is still right right here on this planet it hasn't gone anywhere and we're still using plastic in a ton of things so it's still very much uh, very much here to stay hey um you you alluded to the issue of uh, climate change and uh what we're seeing at the ice caps and and so forth one of the things that certain people have raised as a possibility is climate engineering and broader use of climate engineering. Now, there are some other folks raising some concerns about climate engineering. First, Bill, 
And we'll talk with Bill Burns. He is a best-selling author of many books, too many to list in one radio program. Explain to folks what we mean when we use the term climate engineering. And tell me what you see as the long-term ramifications of climate engineering. Okay. So let's start with one foundational fact. That in, I want to say the 1990s, maybe it was the 80s, there is a U.N., a United Nations protocol. There was an agreement among nations that they would not affect a climate change for the purpose of military advantages. So let's just say that we know that there is a Russian missile base somewhere in Siberia. Okay, and um, it's a base that threatens the West Coast of the United States. So what we do is we engineer climate over that part of the country so that it's always snowing, always icy. It makes it impossible to launch a missile. That's basic. And we probably don't have the technology for it, but. Imagine using climate change, rain, fog, snow, hail. Imagine flooding. Imagine using that for military purposes. So you're altering the environment of another country or area for the purpose of gaining military advantage. Now, let's just say we get to a point technologically. Now, you know we've seeded clouds, right? So there has been cloud seeding. There's a whole theory about um, chemtrails and what is being pumped into our atmosphere. Um, Let's say um, in an area where there's been no rain, where the sun is beating down, where it's actually baking the ground that people can't even live anymore, that we send planes up, balloons up, and spread reflective material in the air to reflect the sun's rays back into space. So just to cool down a certain area, that's affecting the weather of an area, okay? What the U.N. said was that we can't do that. That's the agreement for military purposes. But because you're working with forces actually way beyond your control, things you just don't understand because they're so large, if we start doing climate change and nations – use climate change as a weapon against each other, can you imagine the catastrophic effects it would happen on this planet? It would usher in the very things we're afraid of. And how likely do you think it is that we're headed in that direction internationally? We have the technology, Frank. We have, we've seeded clouds. We've, We've done what I explained about um, using chemtrails to reflect sunlight back into space. Um, we can certainly move huge icebergs. Let's say that we need to uh, move a huge iceberg. We could move a huge iceberg and affect the way that climate affects uh, uh, the way that would affect um, a small area. So I think we have the technology to do it, and I think the only thing that's holding us back, besides international protocols. Is an, is, is an understanding that once we go there, there's no going back. Wow. Uh, it's really well. Hey, let me get your a quick take on, on this. And I realize this probably requires a 
broader discussion, but there, there's now this is a headline that I saw yesterday that really made me uh, stand up and and take note that researchers are close to engineering babies without sex, and they're apparently about seventy percent of the way there. Give me your take on this, Bill. It's frightening, right? What? Imagine. Well, for, see, I believe. Let me see. Uh, the broader context is this: I believe there is a human transformation going on. That we are going from where we are now as a species to a different place biologically, um, socially, and psychologically. That's exactly what I believe. That. Um, <clears throat> I also believe we're not the first civilization on this planet. I think we've talked about that before. Just read the Bible. It's Noah's flood. I believe there was a civilization before that, too. And who knows what civilization is coming after us? We've been around for 3.5 billion years. So, I mean, let's just say that we are, that this planet is a Petri dish to see if life forms from another planet, from another part of the solar system, actually from another part of the, off, off the galaxy, can uh, 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 can live on this planet. And so what I think is that as technology advances, we're now getting to a place. That's why it's true. We're 70% of the way there because we've done this with, uh, with animals. I mean, there are a whole bunch of reasons we can't do this with humans, but we've done it with animals. You create life. Instead of the normal fertilization of sperm and egg, you create life by rejuvenating a stem cell, which has all the ingredients for life, you rejuvenate a stem cell. Why is that important? When we were at Dulce in New Mexico on the Hickory Apache Reservation, there were all these stories about how aliens had come to this planet and they were hybridizing the human species by, by, by uh, genetically intermixing us with animals. What if that's only partially true? Wow. What if what if big pharma? Imagine this, Frank. Imagine this as 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 a medical advancement. Big pharma is able to use live animals, live animal sperm and live animal eggs, live animal DNA to create organs for people. We know that there are things like pig hearts. We know there are things like uh, artificial kidneys grown from stem cells. What if this becomes a universal thing? It is the next phase. It is the next phase, I think, in big pharma. This organ replacement and engineering through stem cells, it would be a way, because look at, okay, look at some of the statistics. Fertility has been falling for the past two decades. The population of this planet, which was growing up to up to 10 million, has suddenly in some areas of this planet in a precipitous decline. The United States is one of those countries. So what if in order to keep this planet populated, to keep the human race alive, we suddenly changed and were able to engineer stem cells, human stem cells to clone new human beings, no sex. No fertilization, just existing cells. Can you imagine the business of doing that? Mm. No. 
Absolutely. It uh, it is stunning uh, to think about. Uh, I, uh, on that note, that's probably as good of a note as any to end it. Bill Burns, it's always a treat to, to talk with you. You always give us a great deal to think about. I look forward to uh, talking again soon. Thank you, Frank. Have a wonderful night. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're certainly welcome to. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. the mail uh, quickly here and uh, if you want to send me a message you can frank.morano at wabcradio.com time for Frank, you mentioned you like the idea of the Listener of the Week concept. Just a friendly reminder in case it slipped your mind. Again, I don't think any prize is necessary. The recognition on air should be more than enough. Yeah, I'm looking at that. I'm I'm working on that for one day next week. All right. um, One person writes, they didn't sign this. Hey, Frank, been a longtime listener of your shows way back to 970. I know you frequently talk about Atlantic City and wanted your opinion on something. I'm trying to book a vacation sometime in August. I was wondering if you had any ideas where I can find the best rates on rooms. Let me know if you can. Well, if we're talking Atlantic City or Vegas specifically, the best thing that I would recommend is if you gamble at all, get a player's card. And you will find that even if you only gamble a little bit, you are, in short order, deluged with offers for free rooms. Now, weekends during the summer are tough, but you'll still pay a much better rate than if you were booking that rate cold. It also helps take advantage of other benefits that are out there. AAA is a big one. If you're a veteran or your spouse is a veteran, that's a big one. Otherwise, I use the pretty standard hotel uh, reservation websites, things like uh, Travelocity, uh, things of that nature, so or Hotels.com. They all pretty much offer the same rates, and some of them can be very competitive. All right, Herb writes, your discussion about Phil Jackson yesterday morning hit a nerve. I was very happily surprised to hear his reaction to the wokeness of the NBA. Needless to say, I thoroughly agree. Uh, very interesting, very interesting, Herb. He also adds, um, well, it's kind of a long email. I'll save, the, save that. Um, 
question um, slash opinion. Evelyn writes, uh, regarding missing stories, if it's not broadcast on your station, I have no interest. Between all the hosts on your station, I believe I get what I need to know. That's nice. On the subject of Disney, when Carmine's of an age at which he himself expresses desire or excitement, perhaps that's the time. Our kindergartners enjoy it. Too young between heat, humidity, and crowds, perhaps he'd nap more and be overwhelmed. And um, your show was one reason to look forward to Monday mornings. That's very nice. Thank you, Evelyn. Uh, On the subject of soda... Neil on Staten Island wrote, I spoke to Charlie the other day and he told me you called and asked for my address and you're going to send me something. I didn't realize that the soda came from you. I thank you for the effort. It's not that I'm used to a sweeter soda, which I am, but I do drink diet soda. It's just that the flavor that I had tasted terrible. I'll try a different flavor. If I don't like it, do you want me to give the rest of the soda to you or should I donate it to the food pantry? No, I will take it. Do not throw any Zevia away. It's like liquid gold. Um, Ellen writes, hi, Frank. How disgraceful the way you were treated at Delta and how stressful for all of you to be dismissed the way you were is unconscionable. And um, she writes, I found that writing emails is good, but believe it or not, you usually get more respect from writing snail mail. It's a good point. I found that as well. They did email yesterday, not in response to anything I wrote them. I get the sense that they sent it to everybody whose flight was canceled. They were offering me 7,500 Sky Miles, which is enough to get me to maybe Buffalo or Cincinnati. So, uh, this Denise writes, hi, Frank. As an insomniac, I depend on radio for my sanity. TV is too awful. At first, I laughed. As Curtis and Avery did their shtick on you, but it's so creepy and low. Who can listen long? I'm sick to death of it and wish John C. would read Curtis the Riot Act. But it's a poor... Everyone can be made fun of, but it's a poor excuse for real humor. And I'm so sick of Curtis and his meanness. Keep on being you. Even liberals like me enjoy you and your show. Curtis needs an attitude adjustment at the very least. He also needs to put some work into his segments, tired of the ancient history and blah, blah. Uh, as I've said before, I think a lot of the segments Curtis does is very funny. But even if they weren't, Curtis has been there for me through thick and thin. And um, I have no complaints at all about any of the subjects, any of the stuff that Curtis does. Um, we'll squeeze in one more. Um, Deborah writes, Hi, Frank. I forgive you for keeping me up most of the night, but I do need to comment on the religious conversion discussion of early this morning. Not really about the conversion aspect, but rather your producer's comment that it costs money to attend synagogue. OMG, where to begin? Such a commitment, such a comment demonstrates how uninformed and, forgive me, foolish he is about the religion he was born into. He could attend any synagogue on the planet every Friday night and Saturday without paying a penny. Frank, if you wanted to join him each Friday evening and Saturday as a Catholic, you too would be welcome. And she goes on to say that you have to pay for the high holy days. You, Thank you for straightening him out there, Deborah. Hopefully he's learned his lesson from the Vox Populi. If we didn't get to your letter, hopefully we will on the next edition of... Comments, questions, thoughts, 800-848-9222. Next hour, we're going to look at one of the most underappreciated years in American history, 1966. Fascinating stuff happening politically, sports, baseball, space, and more. Keep asking questions. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, I was just telling you before about uh, some airline-related issues. Okay, it is what it is. There is a big problem. First of all, actually, I came across a fascinating article on what the safest seat on an airplane is. Now, in terms of aviation deaths as a passenger, it's so... um, rare to have someone actually die on on an airplane that it's almost every seat is pretty safe but if we're talking about both deaths and injuries scientists say that the safest place on an airplane is where do you think it is they say the safest place is in the back in the middle That's where you want to be. As close to the back and as close to the middle as you can, that is the safest spot to be. Now, on the airline front, uh, the country has a big problem. And that is the fact that we are, I don't want to say we're quite running out of pilots, but we are having a situation where there is a massive pilot shortage. The U.S. airline industry is facing a tsunami of pilot retirements. More than half of the pilots in service today are going to hit the mandatory retirement age of 65 in the next 15 years. And there are not, repeat, not enough younger ones there to replace them. And here's what's going on. We're going to see this cascade of pilots retiring with not enough people to replace them. But as it stands now, the country is already facing a pilot shortage. Airlines have cut off 11, have cut off flights to 11 smaller airports entirely. And 500 planes run by regional airlines are sitting idle. That's despite strong demand. Some airlines have seen record bookings from passengers. The combination of high demand and limited availability has driven ticket prices up. And this is very concerning. We are in a a place in this country where we don't have enough pilots. And we don't necessarily have enough pilots in the pipeline. You remember uh, Captain Sully Sullenberger of the uh, Miracle on the Hudson? He spoke to the Today Show about the pilot shortage. 
diminishing the standards now is absolutely the worst thing we could do, especially after all the aviation incidents we've had lately. What we should be doing instead is looking at it very differently. We need to find more and better ways to have well-defined pathways and some financial assistance to be able to arm pilots with the knowledge, skill, and experience that they need to be able to do the job and keep all their passengers and crews safe. This is very alarming. On Wednesday, last Wednesday, the CEO of the Regional Airline Association, Faye Malarkey Black. How would you love to have that name, Faye Malarkey Black? I mean, how do you take them seriously? Ah, Everything they say, it's just malarkey. Just joking. Uh, But um, Faye Malarkey Black told the U.S. House Transportation Infrastructure Committee that over the next 15 15 years, 1-5, nearly 50%, 5-0, of the commercial airline workforce will be forced to retire because they will reach the age of 65. There are 70% more pilots between the ages of 43 and 64 than those between the ages of 21 and 42. That's reflective of the high cost of flight education and training. Under 30 years of age, um, the cohort of pilots is the smallest at about 8% of total pilots. So now you know the situation. We have a scarcity of pilots as it is, and it's going to get worse. Now, maybe the solution will be they're all going to be replaced by AI. They'll all be replaced by computers. I don't know about you, but I'd actually prefer a human pilot. To an AI pilot. Uh, My question for you is, what do you do about this? And I know that we have a lot of pilots that listen to this show because they're used to working on hours. And uh, some of them might be uh, retired pilots. Some might be active. What would you do? So Sully says the solution is not to lower standards. So what should we be doing to make sure that more people want to pursue a career as a commercial airline pilot. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Currently, there are 70% more pilots between the ages of 43 and 64. So we are going to see, in the next 15 years, retirement after retirement after retirement. As a result... 2,225 pilots must retire this year, and required retirements will peak in about six years at 3,750 when the pilots who are now 58 will turn 65. The Regional Airline Association represents regional carriers that offer feeder services to larger airlines, which are facing their own set of pilot shortages. This is... Bad news. So what do we do about it? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Scott Kirby is the American Airlines CEO. He was talking about a pilot school uh, called Aviate on CBS. This is what he said. They're still four to five years away from showing up for their first day in a United Airlines cockpit. But it is the right kind of long-term answer to not just solving the pilot shortage, but creating good careers for people and giving people access to careers that can be life-changing for them, their families, and their communities. Also, if you have a theory beyond what Sully referenced, that it's just the time commitment and the cost involved in training that that are making people shy away from piloting, I'd love to know that. 
One of the main challenges here is that the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration's inaction in advancing and evolving pilot standards. That's what some of the experts are saying. So if you have thoughts as to what other causes might be leading to this, but uh, according to the person I was quoting, Faye Malarkey Black, this has resulted in more pilot candidates failing out today than they did before qualification standards favored flight time over quality training. So the loss of flights and the declining pilots, it's a a lot more than just inconvenience. This can have a very real effect on the economy. This can have a very real effect on many different aspects of American life. So uh, the loss of flights... And declining pilots are bleakly reflected in medium and large size airports across the country. 42 states, for now, have less air service than they did before the pandemic. 14 of those states have lost at least 20% of the ser- their service. Other factors contributing to the shortage of pilots include the high training costs, Flight education, how much do you think it costs to become a pilot? Flight education and training at a certified pilot school costs about $80,000, which can then increase to more than 200000 when you combine that with additional expenses from a bachelor's degree. So because of the high costs, a lot of people can't afford a piloting career. So... One cost-efficient solution that some experts have proposed is providing simulators more widely. I don't know if that's a great solution, but we've got to do something. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Rich in Staten Island. Hello, Rich. Hey, Frank. Good morning. morning. Um, Not to crisscross the issues. There's also pilots require a great skill. Lifeguards, that's another thing you see in the paper all the time, lifeguard shortage. You need a certain skill to be a lifeguard. You need a certain skill to be a pilot. But getting back to pilots, it's the education system. How come in World War II, by the time of the age of 24, there were men flying uh, uh, bomber jets and and, and fighter pilots? They had a basic uh, education that was strong in math and science. And they were able to develop the skill to be a pilot in a very, very short, intense time. And I think perhaps having the uh, loan forgiveness that if you get, you know, a, a degree or training in a private pilot school, perhaps you could, you know, give back and, and work for perhaps uh, a department uh, just like the public student loan forgiveness. You could, you know, do work for the government on your spare time. But I think it's something you cannot lower standards. And you see planes falling out of the sky right. every every week. And I think if the education system was uh, more intense in science and math, we would have young men and women that could perhaps grasp the material of a, a flight training a lot quicker, just like back in World War II. You know, I, I don't disagree with a single thing you said there, Rich. I, I mean, that strikes me as pretty elementary, and I think that's a great way to get started, uh, honestly. Thank you. Great call. 800-848-9222. I love calls like that that are so substantive and I, I so buy into, but 
I love callers really that disagree with me and I can mix it up a little with them because it's kind of so boring. And that's one of my problems with a lot of how modern talk radio is these days. You have a bunch of hosts interviewing a bunch of guests they agree with. And then you have a bunch of callers who call in who agree with the host and the guest. And everyone just says, I agree with you. I mean, that's the most boring thing in the world. Uh, but I can't help it. I agree with everything that guy said. JR is in Brooklyn. Hello, JR. Hey, I'll help you out. Seinfeld is actually a terrible television show. Oh! Wow. How about that? It's really, My. really, really pedestrian. But that's not why I call. Okay. Um, Let me recover from that. All right. All right. So I think that it seems like an unobtainable goal for someone to believe that they could fly an airplane. So like the gentleman before said, uh, you know, young man of 24 years old, they were, they were flying bomber jets and stuff like that. They were forced to learn. You had to learn. We needed pilots. It didn't matter. And I'm not saying this should be a trial and error period with uh, commercial airliners, but there should be a federally funded program, almost like uh, how unions have apprentices. Um, they should be able to get the word out, and they should fund the training. If you're going to be have to adhere to FAA standards, right? Um, you the, the government should have a bigger program in it, telling people, "Hey, listen, you can be a pilot." Because it sounds like astronaut to a lot of people. You look at that. You look at a control board, and you want to lose your mind. But it, it's obtainable to people, and they just don't believe it is. It just seems like a foreign, alien job to do. And I think the government could put out a better program to, just to, educate people on the fact that they can fly a plane, well, and that they would be able to to fund the program. I, I think that's interesting, Jr. What I wonder though is. A lot of these commercial airline pilots are, almost all of them really, are going to be working for private companies that stand to make a lot of money from using their services. So the federal government would essentially be doing a huge favor for these private sector businesses by subsidizing the training that they're going to use to make money with. You see what I'm saying? It's like we do. It's like if we we sent if the taxpayers I mean it's not a perfect analogy but if it's like the taxpayers paid for every bartender to go to bartending school and then the restaurants and bars that those bartenders were in got to keep the money that were the taxpayers were the were the were the provider of initially no problem. They bail out. They bail out big private companies all the time. Yeah, that's uh, unfortunately that's yeah. That's so true. why not get ahead of the curve? Just get ahead of the curve. All right, thank you. You know Jay. what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. I, I'm not crazy about that solution. I like much of what Rich said. I'm not crazy about the solution that we should just pay for every pilot's training. I get where he's coming from. But I, I feel like maybe more of a loan sort of a situation might be better off. And maybe there are other factors as well that I'm not considering and I'm not aware of. Can you give me a call and let me know. 800-848-9222. See, the problem with what Rich is suggesting is we're going to see a major pilot shortage in the next 15 years. And some of the changes that Rich is suggesting involve broader changes to the education system, which take much longer to implement. And I don't think that is um, – that's not kind of the silver bullet that we need within the next 15 years. So, I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. We should. But you try to change anything in a school, and all of a sudden you have to move heaven and earth to 
make sure people can uh, still read textbooks that have been accurate for 100 years? I don't know. 800-848-9222. E. Frank is in Astoria. Hello, E. Frank. Yes. Uh, hi, uh, Frank. Hi. You know, i got to tell you, uh, I haven't flown in years. Okay, I think that being a commercial airline pilot is uh, a very, very serious uh, uh, job. Uh, uh, you know, planes don't crash every day. They're very responsible individuals. But I have to say that, you know, I was studying aircraft uh, to become an aircraft mechanic at one time. And um, I, I have to tell you, it's it's awful. The aircraft mechanic issue is also a problem. Many are, are retiring and they can't uh, find individuals that are, are willing to uh, become aircraft mechanics. There's no demand anymore for the old uh, rivets and boats uh, theory. Now it's all composite airplanes with side panels that... Uh, uh, require uh, less maintenance. So the, the aircraft mechanics are not doing well either. And I do to tell you, in the, in, in the essence, you know, I believe that pilots uh, are retiring because of mandatory retirement age. Same thing in the police. Well, yeah, I mean, th- that's up. true. I mean, we know that that's true. So should okay, we get away with know, that? We do away with that? Yeah, well, I would like to say we can do away with that, but, you know, I, I, I doubt it very much that the, uh, an older man can really handle certain levels of stress at a certain age. And I, I actually believe, all right, Frank, sincerely, sincerely, what you're saying is partially true, but destroying the morale of passengers and saying that, you know, in 15 years, the retirements will be worse and worse, you know. I was involved with the U.S. Air Force. I had it made to do anything within the Air Force and within the FAA as an aircraft mechanic. But commercial airline pilots have usually demand contracts. The Allied Commercial Pilots Union, they really, you know, when they see people running around inside the fuselage and screaming, banging on the cockpit doors, when they see uh, threatening uh, problems uh, when they, you know, in airports, like it, it, the, the morale of the, of the commercial airline pilot drops. They don't want to be a pilot. They don't even want to recommend other people to, to, uh, you know, train to become a, a commercial airline pilots in the future. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response. Were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought? Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. Kevin is in Northport. Hello, Kevin. Hi. Now, listen, I'm not a pilot, but I'm a graduate of the Air Force Staff College and the Air Force War College and a long-term member of the Air Force Association. And one thing that you have to take into consideration is that military pilots have been a traditional source of Mm. pilots for the commercial airlines. Mm. And the Air Force has been suffering a long-term decline in size, roughly since the Gulf War, and it's continuing to decline in size. You're you're right about that. that source of pilots is drying up. So we've got to enlist more, more people in the Air Force. Well, we need to do that completely aside from the uh, needs of the commercial airlines. But if you have fewer pilots, which the Air Force does, 
then you have fewer pilots mm. leaving the Air Force at some point to take jobs as commercial pilots. That's an excellent point, Kevin, a, and a very good point. And I think it points to a lot of the <laughs> – it's a great analysis, and I hadn't seen that mentioned anywhere else, but I think it points to a lot of broader problems we're having maintaining military recruitment goals. Jay is in the Poconos. Hello, Jay. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. So um, I'm by no means an expert, but at one time I did check into it because it's something I always wanted to do. Um, when I really wanted to do it, I, my vision would uh, exclude me from flying. But uh, the other thing is that it's the training is expensive, and, and as Kevin said, the, the military was a big source of uh, pilots, um, but even once you start school and you go through the school, you're going to start out on the low end of the pay scale, and you're going to be flying a puddle jumper, and, and it's a tough lifestyle uh, to, to get used to. They, all the air crews, even the air crews, they're, it, they're really uh, pushed. Um, and that's a, another thing that people say, well, I'm only making this amount right. of money for this amount of grief. Um, when we, I used to live in Seattle, and Boeing had a STEM school there because they they knew they needed engineers to build planes and design planes and people to fly them. Um, I used to haul parts for Boeing, and it's amazing all that goes into an aircraft. And uh, the other thing, there was actually when we left Seattle, there was a, a ground crew guy like a baggage handler that stole a jet airliner and took it on a joyride until he well, finally crashed. That is crazy. I can't imagine. I am not that. kidding you. I believe he you. Took I, it and he, he, did, he did a loop over the Puget Sound, and he crashed. You know, and it was amazing. It's, it's a complicated procedure just to start a jet. Yeah, I would imagine so. He, I don't, wouldn't know where to begin. up. He picked it up from being around it all the time. Well, that is he knew what to do. That is remarkable. So, Jay, um, long term, well, when I say long term, next 15 to 20 years, what do we do about this problem? Let's say you're in charge. What do we do about the pilot shortage? Well, the, the, the people who are interested, meaning the airlines and maybe even the aircraft manufacturers, need to step up and, and recruit people and give them the kind of life that they want to, to do that job. Every time I get into an airplane, I just, I get so excited. When I, I told you yesterday, I went to Germany when I was four years old and my dad's friend in Germany was worked for Lufthansa. So I got the whole tour of the cockpit. I sat in the seat as a four year old kid and it was amazing. It just, ever since then, I, I really, Enjoy aircraft. All right, well, nay, good for you. Thank you, Jay. You know, it's funny. You know, first of all, two people that we have on fairly regularly that are also certified as pilots. One is John Katzmatidis. He doesn't fly anymore. I think his wife vetoed that. But the other is uh, Dr. Sky, Steve Case. He's a pilot. You ever listen to him talk about aviation? He knows a great deal about it. All right. 1966, one of the most underrated years in American history is finally getting its due. Thanks to a book by David Krell, who we've had on this show before, a great historian, great writer, great speaker. And a lot of you might have been alive during 1966. 
I'm betting even those of you that were alive don't necessarily have a full appreciation of the broad historical impact in so many different spheres that that year had. We're going to get into it with David Kraut straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Wiz Kids had won it. Bobby Thompson had done it. And Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born. Marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella. Talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller. The scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque. Especially Willie, Mickey, and Terry Luke. Cashman talking baseball. And you know what's so interesting about this song? It's a great song. One, it's just a great beat to it. The lyrics are brilliant. But it really captures an incredible part of baseball here, uh, history. But you also hear about the nexus between baseball history and American history. And uh, I think that is something which is so unique to the game of baseball. There are other sports that have greater viewership. That certainly professional football does. Uh, on a worldwide basis, soccer does. But I don't think there's any sport, maybe no recreational activity in general, that is so married to American history as baseball is. One of the people who's made it his business to chronicle every aspect of American history, including the significant portion that baseball has played in it, is David Krell, and he's done it again. He is a terrific journalist, best-selling author, and a commentator, and his latest book is Do You Believe in Magic? Baseball and America in the Groundbreaking Year of 1966. David, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining me on the radio. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's my pleasure. So, a lot of great years in American history where a lot of stuff went on. We think of 1969, you got the moon landing, you got Woodstock, you got the beginning of the Nixon presidency, you got uh, the Mets winning the World Series, the Miracle Mets. Um, Why did you pick, out of all the years that American history has existed, including the years in which baseball was involved, why did you pick 1966 to focus on? Well, it's very simple. I was looking around for a topic after the 1962 book was published, and we've talked about that, and 66 hadn't been done before. And I said, well, I I can't really add something new to the to the topics that you mentioned, but 66 is kind of you know, overlooked. So I said, well, there, there's a lot that went on in baseball that year, but it was a, a great year for the country as well. One of the things that um, we talk a lot about on this program is the space program. We're having a, an astronaut on tomorrow, but we've talked a lot about the history of the space program as well. What was happening in terms of the space program in 1966? We hadn't yet reached the moon 
But the Apollo missions were going very well and doing a lot of interesting things, stimulating a lot of people's imaginations. Remind folks of where we were as a country when it came to space travel at that point. Well, again, Project Gemini has been overlooked. Uh, We've seen the right stuff or read the book. That's about the Mercury program from the Earth to the Moon, that HBO miniseries from the late 90s that chronicled basically the Apollo project, which sent the guys to the moon. But the Gemini project was the project that had the two-man missions. Uh, they did a lot of experiments in space and, and tried to find out how to how to fly the, the capsule and all these the technical things that I know nothing about, but I'm a space buff nonetheless. Uh, and they were really integral because you had the one-man missions, the two-man missions, and then Apollo, the three-man missions. And I, I just I just wanted to mention those in the book because I wanted to remind people that this was a time when the country was more or less unified. Yes, we had the Vietnam War. Yes, you had protests. Yes, you had the same problems between Republicans and Democrats then that you have now. But the space program was something that everybody could get behind. You know, that's so interesting. It's a great point. Why do you think, because there's a lot happening now with the space program. You see what uh, Elon Musk is doing. You see what Jeff Bezos is doing, Richard Branson, and what NASA is doing and what other countries are doing in terms of space exploration. And yet, both in this country and internationally, it seems like, and maybe this is just my perception, but it seems like there are just tremendous divisions and the space program is not serving as that unifying force that's making racial fault lines and political polarization lines melt away. Why do you think that, that the space program was so unifying to Americans in 1966, but even now that we're talking about going back to the moon, we got things happening with the Webb telescope, you don't really see that in 2023. How come? Spot on. I, I think the Cold War was the underlining factor that propelled the space program, especially in the 60s. And it was ubiquitous in pop culture. I Dream of Jeannie had an astronaut as the main character or the, the co-lead with Barbara Eden. Uh, Larry Hagman played uh, Captain, later Major Nelson. Uh, you had futuristic shows like Lost in Space and Star Trek. I know you've spoken with William Shatner, who's a hero of mine as well as yours. So there was something in the air. And because of the Cold War, we needed to beat the Russians to the moon. And that was a big reason mm. why you had these huge headlines, why uh, you had breaking news when the Gemini capsule for a mission plopped down, splashed down in the ocean, uh, kids coming home from school, uh, p- uh, teachers bringing the TV sets into the classrooms so they could watch a launch. This is something that everybody was talking about, and we're so fragmented now as a nation, it's kind of difficult to have that excitement over a national project. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm afraid uh, I'm afraid you're right. All right, you've got the uh, Orioles on the cover of the book. Right. I know they played the Dodgers in the World Series that year. What was so special about that that Orioles team? We got a lot of listeners on WCBM in in Baltimore right. and uh, a lot of Orioles fans listening to us right now. What was so magical about that Orioles team in that particular World Series? Well, the Orioles were younger. The Dodgers were a national brand. When they were in Brooklyn, they were a national brand by going to the World Series all those years in the 50s and twice in the 40s, or no, three times uh, at least in the 40s. And then you had 
then then moved to L.A. and because of pop culture, because they were on the Munsters or uh, the Beverly Hillbillies, things like that, they were reinforced as a national brand in L.A. and the Orioles were uh, just uh, they they. They had a great year in 64. 66, they clinch in the middle of September, I think about the third week or so. And the Dodgers just took till the end of the season. So for the Orioles to upset the Dodgers, and it wasn't by a great amount. I mean, these were low-scoring games. Mm. But uh, to defeat the vaunted Dodgers, these these amazing uh, pitchers like Drysdale and Koufax, was a, a, an achievement. Now, if you talk to Dodgers fans, they'll tell you, "Well, my guys were tired. They took to the end of the end of the season. They were in a three-way pennant race in September. So by the time they got to the World Series, they were exhausted. Nonetheless, I, to to lose to a, a much younger team, not as seasoned as the Dodgers, was was still a big story. Uh, who were some of the characters on that uh, Orioles team that uh, that folks may know, or even some that they may not be familiar with? Well, Jim Palmer mm. was, was at the beginning of his career. Uh, he was a tremendous force for the Orioles. And there's a, a guy I write about in the book, Mo Drabowski. Uh, Mo was a journeyman pitcher. He was a prankster. He was a clubhouse guy. He would put goldfish in the opposing team's water coolers. It, later, in a later World Series, he gave a hot foot to Commissioner Bowie Kuhn. This was just a fun-loving guy, and uh, as I say, he was a journeyman pitcher who uh, did, never really found his footing. And then in Baltimore, they became uh, they became a younger team. As I said, he was a bit of a veteran, but they changed him into being a relief pitcher. And the reason that's important is because in Game One of the World Series, he comes in early in the game and strikes out a record number of batters in a World Series game for a relief pitcher. And there's a story that goes with that in the book where uh, seven years to the date before that game, there was a death in his family. And I chronicle that in the book. There's a poem about it at the end. And if you believe in angels, if you believe in heaven, if you believe in the supernatural, that will be reinforced by this story. If you don't, I'm hoping it will nudge you towards the line. And as I heard the story from his family, I kept thinking about Brad Pitt in uh, in Moneyball, where he says, who says you can't be romantic about baseball? Right, absolutely. Uh, talking with David Krell, his new book, Do You Believe in Magic? Yeah. Baseball and America in the Groundbreaking Year of 1966. Uh, by the way, David, do you have a preferred way that people get a hold of this book, Amazon or your website, any place that you direct them? I think I think if you go on Amazon, it'll get to you quicker than uh, any other source. Okay. Um, there's a lot of talk about the Supreme Court these right. days, and we know what a factor the Supreme Court can be in dividing the country or uh, advancing certain civil rights, setting other civil rights back. 1966 was actually a huge year for the Supreme Court. Why was that? The Miranda decision. Mm. The Miranda decision that anybody who watched a cop show after the age of eight, after 1966, can recite the Miranda ruling. Uh, it, It was in every police program when there's an arrest. So this was important that people, when they're arrested, can know their rights. And it was a it, it was a huge 
a huge turning point for the country, huge turning point for criminal defense lawyers, huge turning point for police. And if you watch, uh, someone had mentioned this on uh, on a comment regarding the Shawshank Redemption. If you watch the end of that movie, it I think it takes place in 1966. And when they arrest the prison guard, the cop is reading off a card because they didn't know the Miranda warnings by mm. heart. This was a relatively new ruling, so they had to make sure that they got that wording correctly. Of course, now police officers understand this at the academy, and they, they might have a card if the person only speaks Spanish or another language, but uh, police officers recite this uh, by rote, they they just know it. Well, so that's so interesting. The, the the Miranda warning, which obviously I think even a lot of the viewers and listeners know uh, from watching police dramas over the years, you have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney if you right. can't afford an attorney. One will be provi- uh, provided for you. That was so new to police officers that they had it written down to yeah. read because that Supreme Court decision. How uh, how closely divided was the court on that decision, David? Gosh, I'd have to go back and do the research, but what one one thing I want to mention also about court systems, if I can, for a minute. Uh, you mentioned the Supreme Court. Judge Jackson, either during her testimony or an interview, she mentioned a woman who's in the book, uh, Constance Baker Motley. Ah. And Constance Baker Motley could have been a Supreme Court justice herself, but was never appointed. She is the first black woman to be on the federal bench. And she figures prominently in two baseball cases, one involving a sports writer, a female sports writer, who was barred from the clubhouse at Yankee Stadium. And when the case went before Judge Motley, she said, look, you can bar all the reporters, but you can't bar a subset. You can't just bar the women. So you're going to have to figure this out. A woman has to be able to get sources, to build a rapport, just like a man. They're reporters. They're all the same. So either ban them all and figure out some other way that they can get their information, or you have to find a way to include them. You know, it's uh, that's so interesting. I knew a lot about Judge uh, Constance Baker Motley, uh, but I did not know about that aspect of her career. That's uh, that's pretty interesting. Now, um, in terms of the uh, popular culture at the time, in 1966, the reading world had been rocked by a book that's still widely read and some somewhat controversial in some quarters today, Valley, Valley of the Dolls. Why was Valley of the Dolls such a big deal in America in 1966? Because it covered taboo subjects in a best-selling novel that was – uh, those subjects would be covered maybe in pulp novels, right? So-called dirty books. Right. Uh, she gives heft. She gives dimension. She gives empathy and pathos and compassion to these characters. By the end of the of the book, I really felt for the character of Anne. And I'm reading this, and I'm awed. This is when I'm doing the research in the early 2020s. I can only imagine what it was like in 1966, and I talk about that aspect of it. Uh, Jacqueline Suzanne writes about sex and body image and drug addiction and dolls, to some people's uh, probably surprise, uh, does not refer to women. It refers to pills. Drugs form a big part of this story and how people can get sucked into addiction. And to have these taboo subjects, uh, lesbianism, 
body image, uh, uh, adultery, things that really weren't talked about on, on a mainstream level, not, not to this degree, certainly not in a best-selling novel. Uh, this, this was a real turning point. And it wasn't for titillation factors. It wasn't for, to be salacious. She just wanted to write a story about people she knew or had heard of. You know, she was in show business herself. And she created this story. I understand that the movie did not cover the book. You know, it, it deviated somewhat. Um, and I think it's, uh, from what I'm told, it was really part of maybe the camp category, right. a parody. Uh, that's far from the book. The book is very serious. It's very serious. And I, I think it's a great beach read. I recommend it. Mm. And it's as prevalent now, it's as prominent now with the topics in, in 2023 as it was in 1966. Uh, talking with David Crowell, his book is Do You Believe in Magic? You alluded to the drug culture in America in 1960s. What was going on in terms of drugs in 1966 in the United States? Well, as far as I could tell, Frank, you know, it, it wasn't talked about. It was, you know, marijuana was really, now it's legal. Uh, and, and that would have been like science fiction in right, 1966. Right. Um, people saw it as a scourge, and it was. But certainly, you didn't have the, you didn't have celebrities going to rehab and then publicizing it. For example, uh, now if a if a celebrity goes to rehab, the celebrity writes a tell all about it. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. You know, maybe if somebody who has a drug problem sees a celebrity uh, going to rehab, that will make that person say, "Oh, I can conquer this too." Back then, that that was absolutely unheard of. No, that that is absolutely for sure. How about in terms of pop culture? What were people watching on television? What were people seeing in the oh. in the theaters? Well, Batman for for one. Batman, I mean, Batman and Robin, was, the Adam uh, West and Burt Ward. Uh, Adam West is the definitive Batman. I mean, come on, let's get that straight. For baby boomers and Generation Xers like myself who saw Batman in reruns, uh, Adam West is still prominent. Uh, that show skyrocketed to popularity, and of course, it inspired a slew of superhero takeoffs. And then you had the spy culture, you had the Man from Uncle, you had I Spy, uh, Space, we mentioned, Star Trek was huge, Mission Impossible premiered along with Star Trek in 1966. So you, you had a, a lot of things that were in real life, but then represented in the culture as well represented in TV and movies. So it, it was a time when you, you knew what was going on. People were unified as a nation. And w when I look around at what's going on now, it, it, it's just the, all this sniping. I, right before we went on, I, I saw that Patti LuPone is criticizing uh, Kim Kardashian for, being, uh, for having a role in American Horror Story because she has no acting experience. <laughs> well, you know who else had no acting experience? Lee Merriweather, who played Catwoman in the Batman movie. Liberace, who played a villain in the Batman movie. Frank Sinatra was a singer before he became an actor. Howard Cosell played himself on two episodes of The Odd Couple. Pamela Anderson was on Baywatch. She was a model. She was a model who was discovered at a football game. And she became an, a, a member of the cast of one of the biggest syndicated shows of all time. So the, the, you didn't have this sniping. I can't imagine a, an actor in 1960, excuse me, in 1966 
sniping at, at somebody just because a producer made a business decision. And there's too much money on the line for something like that to to take place and say, oh, it's just stunt casting. Right. You have to do your job. I mean, yeah, at, at I, I also point. think that you didn't have the uh, the megaphone of social media no. that would allow every angry critic to essentially be viewed on people's phones or computer screens the same way as the uh, the, the front page of the New York Times. So that, that's, that's certainly a, a different great, factor. Uh, Frank, that's a great point. I mean, there were critics of the space program uh, who, who said, well, why are we putting this money in going into space? Why, we should be putting it into social programs. You would have uh, liberal Congress people, uh, congressmen and congresswomen uh, tweeting that with millions of followers. And you might have protests about the space program if social media existed back then. And it, there's just so much sniping. There's so much judgment. The cancel culture, which is another story that we could talk about sometime. I, there, sometimes you, you, it is like time travel when you go back and you go to databases and you go to microfilm and you look at the front page in 1966. Yes, take any day and you have basically this similar problems, but not this sniping and, you know, people getting kicked out of restaurants because they vote for a certain person. Uh, the, the culture we live in is really, really difficult right now. Well, it's a terrific book. I highly recommend it. The author is David Krell, and uh, the book is a, a wonderful look at Americana and American history. Do you believe in magic? Baseball and America in the groundbreaking year of 1966. Thank you, David. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to do so. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Morano, I want to thank my friend Pat Russo. He's on the board of directors of something called the Cathedral Club, which is the Catholic lay organization for the Diocese of Brooklyn. So he bought a couple of tables at their annual Cigar Night fundraiser last night at uh, Gargiulo's, which is, if you're listening outside of the uh, New York area, it's just an incredible restaurant. And um, he was kind enough to invite me as his guest, and uh, they give you – I mean, it's really a great night, great fundraiser, great organization. But they give you, you – basically, it's a tough room to walk in. I'm sure these clothes are going to have to be dry cleaned. But they give you all these cigars when you walk in, uh, and I'm sure Pat paid a fair amount of money for these tables. They give you all these cigars when you walk in, including a very nice selection one of the cigars in there was a Monte Cristo. I smoked that um, last night, and it was spectacular, absolutely spectacular. I got to uh, see a guy that's been a guest on the show before, Adam Want, who's terrific, and um, and it was a wonderful time to meet a lot of new people. 
and to uh, say hello and reconnect with a lot of old friends, including Craig Eaton, who a lot of you may hear on the radio with our boss, John Katsimatidis, uh, who's a political mastermind and has been a leader uh, in the Brooklyn Republican Party for many years and just a a great, uh, great guy nonetheless. So it was great to see such a a good crowd uh, out there. I was happy to be there. I'll tell you, my wife was not at all happy that after me being away for four days, having an event that had me leave early the night before, that I was going to another event. But uh, Pat's such a good friend, and he's always been there for me, that I I felt that um, that he really wanted me to come to this, and I felt I kind of owed it to them. But I'm going to make an effort to not go to anything charitable or philanthropic or political that involves me leaving home earlier than necessary during the week for for some time because Rachel was not at all pleased that I was going to yet another event. So I was going to try and go to another charity event on Thursday for another great group, uh, which, you know, maybe I'll tell you about as we get closer. But I really, given Rachel's attitude last night, you say makes no sense. I don't see that happening at all. Uh, so I thank her for her, her patience. I did post a picture from the um, the uh, Cathedral Club event on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. That's facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O fan. And, you know, Mike Long was a friend of mine. He was on the board of directors of the Cathedral Club. And this was the first event they had since his passing. So they had a big photograph of Mike Long um, in the in the main area as well. But uh, you can see the photo of me and um, the uh, some of the other fellows that were there, including Pat Russo on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. Met a lot of people that said they listened to this show all the time, and uh, I appreciated that. I'm glad we had so many listeners. But um, if you want to be heard, you can comment as you see fit on anything we've covered. Now, what we're going to do after the top of the hour, is talk about the biggest story in media right now, which is all the firings that took place yesterday. The president of CNBC, Don Lemon from CNN, and the most watched man in cable news, Tucker Carlson. Now, before you rush to react, and there's going to be plenty of time to, for, to react, you have five minutes to come up with an answer to this question. Now, we don't know the answer, so it's all speculation on all our parts. But the question I want you to give some thought to is why? Why was Tucker, who was watched by about three and a half million people a year, a a night, excuse me, why was he fired? Give me your answer. Start queuing up at 800-848-9222. We'll get into that whole situation. Howard is in Manhattan. Hello, Howard. Yeah, hi. Uh, Thank you for taking the call. And I've been listening since you started with WABC. And uh, anyway, there's a Beatles book entitled 1966 about the Beach Boys who released Pet Sounds and the Beatles, whose last concert was August 29, 66, where baseball, Candlestick Park in San Francisco. Uh, hey, give me the title again, the, Howard. Give me the title again. The, uh, 1966. Thank you. I have it somewhere. I, it's too dark in my Thank apartment. Thank you. Your influence counts. Be sure to use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, 
Good morning, everybody. Uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, appreciate you listening. A big day, a big day when it came to media transitions, media firings, and changes in general. Don Lemon, longtime anchor at CNN, has been let go. He tweeted the following yesterday. I was informed this morning by my agent that I have been terminated by CNN. I am stunned. After 17 years at CNN, I would have thought that someone in management would have had the decency to tell me directly. At no time was I ever given any indication that I would not be able to continue to do the work I have loved at the network. It is clear that there are some larger issues at play. With that said, I want to thank my colleagues and the many teams I have worked with for an incredible run. They're the most talented journalists in the business, and I wish them all the best. Now, if that's the case, I do feel bad for the guy. I do think he deserved a bit better than that. Um, I I don't think anybody should be fired that way, especially after giving 17 years of your life to a company. So I feel bad for him about how his departure was handled. That being said, I am surprised that it took CNN this long. I mean, if you look at all of the articles that have been in the New York Post and other and Variety and other publications, it was clear that someone at CNN was intentionally leaking all sorts of damaging information to the media To make Don Lemon look bad. Now, a company does not leak that kind of information to the public if they think you have a long-term career there. No, they do it so that your ratings go down. They do it so that when the inevitable firing comes, that that, that they actually have a, a better leg up in the PR war. So I'm surprised it took this long. I mean, and it's not just those comments that he made about women being past their prime. You just get the sense that he was not really well liked by the new leadership at CNN, and he's not really the direction that they want to go. I've seen Don Lemon a couple of times. I never got his appeal. I never uh, found him to be, I don't want to say anything bad about anybody that's lost their job, But I never found him to be particularly bright. I never found him to be particularly entertaining. I didn't think he was a good interviewer. I thought that he was um, pretty weak, honestly, in every measurable respect. I learned nothing um, by watching him. So what would happen is I wouldn't watch him. And I I enjoy other people on CNN, for instance... um, the uh, you know the show that I watch every Saturday morning he's filling in this week, but is Michael Smirkanish? He's on this week in prime time. That would be the kind of addition to prime time I'd love to see. Uh, I never got Don Lemon. I was not a fan. I don't think he was good on television. So I'm not sorry to see him go, but I am sorry for him as a person. 
with how this was this was handled. Now, then we saw what happened at CNBC with Hadley Gamble, the CNBC anchor. Um, excuse me, the CNBC president. No, Hadley Gamble was someone else. I can't even keep all my CNBC scandals straight. At CNBC, you have the uh, the president, um, uh, Jeff Shell. Let go the CEO, not the president. Jeff Shell fired over a sex scandal involving CNBC reporter Hadley Gamble. So he was ousted evidently over this inappropriate relationship. I cannot understand why so many powerful men keep doing this, meaning getting involved with subordinates after seeing what happened with Jeff Zucker. At CNN, wouldn't you just think you keep your pants on at the workplace? There's a whole world of women out there. Why do you need to mess around with women in the workplace? I just can't understand. The guy clearly, I don't know much about Jeff Shell, but he clearly is an intelligent guy. The guy made it to the head of a major news organization and yet didn't have the wherewithal. To not get involved with one of the news anchors. So she accused him of sexual harassment and he admitted to having an inappropriate relationship with the employee. See, that's the thing. Even if you get involved romantically with someone at work, even if it's totally above board and consensual, and it's a shame that this is way, but especially if it's a subordinate, if things turn sour... You can always claim that it's sexual harassment. And the understanding around CNBC is that this relationship between this guy, the CEO, who's, of course, married, and this um, Middle Eastern-based reporter, Ms. Gamble, began before he was named CEO, and then it continued. One insider told Page Six that he didn't seem like the type to be involved in a workplace thing. See, it's never the ones you suspect. That's the thing. He was always very respectful and respectful of women in particular. And they're not even sure how these two might have met since she's based in Abu Dhabi. One person speculated it might have been at Davos. But um, it's it's a a sad situation for everybody involved, especially um, Jeff Shell and his wife, Laura Faye Shell, and their two children. That's the thing that when we cover this like tabloid fodder. That's the thing that often gets overlooked is that these are real people with real families. And I feel bad for for everybody involved. Now, Tucker Carlson, the most watched man in cable news, three and a half million viewers a day, fired abruptly. No goodbye show. Primetime host and anchor Tucker Carlson abruptly fired from Fox News. This has sent shockwaves throughout the political and media ecosystem. And this is potentially going to drive a pretty significant wedge between the conservative movement, where Tucker was something of a of a of a god or a demigod, and the biggest platform in all of cable news. Carlson had he had massive influence. And that 
kind of he got that influence because he appealed to the same sort of populist right wing forces that former President Trump harnessed to take over the GOP and get elected president. Uh, Charlie Kirk said on his radio show, who's also a big wig in conservative circles, Tucker Carlson remade the right. He was more powerful than anybody else since the death of Rush Limbaugh in reshaping the right. I think he's right. Donald Trump Jr. called Tucker Carlson once a once-in-a-generation talent, arguing that outside his father, no one understands the GOP base better. This changes things permanently. That's what Donald Trump Jr. said. One example of Tucker Carlson's influence over GOP politics up until yesterday was the, this Fox News host sent a questionnaire to the current and potential presidential candidates last month challenging them on the U.S. role on the war in Ukraine. Nine of them responded, including Ron DeSantis, who triggered this intense backlash and eventual walk back after referring to the war as a territorial dispute. Some candidates had expected Tucker to send out additional surveys on key issues that have generated fault lines within the GOP. So we really don't know why Tucker left. There's a number of theories, which we can go into, but Axios says that it has nothing to do with the Dominion voting system settlement, which I agree with. Um, it, it uncovered a trove of embarrassing texts from Tucker. I, I don't think it has anything to do with the Dominion settlement, which I'll get into. Um, but some of those embarrassing text messages revealed how Tucker Carlson really feels about Donald Trump. And it was a little bit different than what you see on television. Fox is also facing some additional legal threats. That's that's what other people are saying might have been responsible for Tucker's ouster. Not only do you have a lawsuit from a former producer, but you have a uh, another lawsuit from Smartmatic, which is asking for even more money than Dominion. Let me give you... A little bit of my perspective before we get into some of the other analysis and invite you to comment at 800-848-9222. I think this is just awful, awful news, because I, I really enjoy Tucker. He, there are only two shows that I watch on cable news. Tucker Carlson is one. And I don't really consider myself a conservative, but I, I, Tucker Carlson spoke for my brand of populism, but even when I disagreed with him, and I disagreed with the things that he did, which was, you know, regularly, I appreciated the fact that the perspective that he brought to the airwaves every night was different from the rest of what you would see on cable news. For instance, the war in Ukraine. Nobody else in cable news has a perspective like his. You know, on Fox, when Donald Trump was at the height of his popularity about uh, uh, among Republicans, Tucker Carlson eviscerated Donald Trump's own national security advisor, John Bolton. There is not a single other Fox host that would do that. He eviscerated Donald Trump's top advisor, Jared Kushner, when Elizabeth Warren announced her candidacy for president. The, Tucker Carlson read through her 
economic pop patriotism platform without saying who it was. And he said to the viewer, he said, now you, if you're a Republican voter and a Republican donor, is there anything in what I just read that you don't agree with? You know who wrote that? Not your Republican senator, but Elizabeth Warren. And the way he can craft a monologue is so beautiful. And I really admired his independence. I really admired his willingness to say the things that no one else would say. I really admired his willingness to have on guests that were never on any of the other cable news shows. I really admired the different um, stories that he would cover. I mean, uh, guys like Colonel Douglas McGregor, Professor Stephen Cohen, these aren't folks that you would see on any other show. I really love that um, his show was different. And now cable news is going back to sameness with Tucker gone. So the question that I've been asking and I'm trying to find an answer to is why? Because um, this is not an easy question to answer. Three and a half million viewers a day, they fired their top-rated host. So in the uh, hours following his firing, there were a few explanations that have emerged, and we're going to go through them. It go, now, a lot of people were saying this had something to do with the Dominion voting system settlement. Well, what? What specifically about this case prompted his firing, specifically? And if, it, if they were upset at what he did on television... Well, they would have fired Maria Bartiromo and Janine Pirro. They didn't do that. It could be related to ex-producer Abby Grossberg's lawsuit against the network, which alleged rampant sexism and anti-Semitic behavior behind the scenes. Not so sure. I'm not so sure. Uh, Rupert Murdoch has shown a willingness to fight a lot of these lawsuits, unless there's something that was going to come out in Discovery, which would have been very damaging to Tucker Carlson. It could have been... Just a matter of the Murdoch, the young Murdochs, the the sons of Rupert, whose Lachlan is now the chief executive, they wanted to send a message about who's in command at the company after having been embarrassed for months with the public airing of Fox's dirty laundry. Because, you know, Fox has before been through this. Uh, Bill O'Reilly, Megyn Kelly, Glenn Beck, they were all at the top of their game. And they all left, and Fox survived. So I think they're betting, the Murdochs are betting, that this is going to be what we've seen before. In January 2017, Megyn Kelly left Fox, followed only three months later by um, Bill O'Reilly getting let go. And that deprived Fox of two of its biggest stars, Megyn Kelly and O'Reilly, who were dominant in, in primetime, and they survived. They promoted Tucker to uh, uh, Megyn Kelly's time slot. He did even better than she did. So it didn't seem like a slam dunk move by any stretch, and it worked. So we could see, uh, remember when Glenn Beck left, everyone was saying, oh, I'll never watch the network again. They replaced him with the five, which actually does better than Glenn Beck did. So I'm sorry to see him go. Um, I would love to hear your theory as to why. I've heard a lot of great commentary on this, including from two of the people. I'll tell you what I don't like first, and then we'll get into a commentary from two of the people that I just mentioned 
and your calls. I, you know, I didn't watch Don Lemon, but I'm not happy that he's fired. I didn't care that he was on television to begin with. And yet, people that don't agree with Tucker Carlson's politics, they're out there celebrating and popping champagne. Now, I just, I can't wrap my head around that. If you don't like Tucker Carlson, don't watch him. But three and a half million viewers a day did enjoy his program. So why are you happy that someone who was enjoyed by millions, the most successful host in all of cable news, why are you happy that those people now don't get to watch the show that they really enjoy? And why are you happy when anyone gets fired? One example of that was the hosts of The View reacting when this news broke yesterday morning. Well, can I can I ask the audience if they'll help me do something? <laughs> Come on, folks. Na, 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 na. Na, 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 na. Hey, hey, goodbye. Na, 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 na. I mean, anyone likes to celebrate the demise of someone's career but well, he's, he's not, but he is responsible yeah. for no the demise of someone's career yeah but but he <laughs> is responsible for the degradation that we see somewhat of our democracy in this country and i just think as a faithful person look at god oh look please. at god uh, i just well, i just you know, russian uh, propaganda uh, hardest oh hit. please I, I just i can't i mean he's not responsible for the degradation of our democracy in any way. Um, I mean, that's just ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And God has nothing to do with this. Look at God. I mean, I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. Now, one theory that was put forth by um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in, I'm not saying this is it, but this is what he said. Fox fire. Oh, oh, let me play someone else that I thought was just out of out of control. And that's Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Tucker Carlson is out at Fox News. Couldn't have happened to a better guy. There you go. Very classy. Um, Very classy. What I will say, though, is. While I'm very glad that the person that is arguably responsible for the some of the largest driving some of the most uh, amounts of death threats and violent threats, not just to my office, but to plenty of people across the country. Oh, please. Tucker Carlson's responsible for death threats to AOC. I just, I just, I can't. I'm sorry for even trying to play. Um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Democratic candidate for president, he said, he tweeted the following, Fox fires Tucker Carlson five days after he crosses the red line by acknowledging that the TV networks pushed a deadly and ineffective vaccine to please their pharma advertisers. Carlson's breathtakingly courageous April 19th monologue broke two of TV's biggest rules. Tucker told the truth about how greedy pharma advertisers controlled TV news content, and he lambasted obsequious newscasters for promoting jabs they knew to be lethal and worthless. For many years, Tucker has had the nation's biggest audience Averaging three and a half million, ten times the size of CNN, Fox just demonstrated the terrifying power of Big Pharma. Now, I don't think Tucker was fired because he had Robert Kennedy on or because he talked about vaccines. I don't. However, I remember three or four years ago, 
I don't remember what Tucker was talking about. Maybe it was trade. Maybe it was Ukraine. Maybe it was Syria. And then again, that was another example of Trump, um, of Tucker demonstrating such significant independence from Trump. There was no show on Fox that uttered one criticism of Trump bombing Syria except for Tucker Carlson. But for Tucker's program, everyone would have been marching along. Oh, this is great. Well, you know, that's great. Tucker was the only show to exercise a modicum of independence. And I don't remember what he was talking about three or four years ago, but it was very critical of corporate America, very critical of the D.C. culture, very critical of the media industrial complex, uh, very critical of the people that pay to run the media and people that pay to run campaigns and the people that run the Republican Party. And I said to my wife at the time, she wasn't listening to his monologue, but I'm watching this commentary and I say to her, it might have been about Russia, I don't remember. I said, I cannot believe this man is still permitted to be on television. I said, I know this guy gets great ratings, but this cannot continue. There is no way they're going to let this message continue to be on television. And the fact that he has so many viewers, I think that's an indication that he's even more dangerous to the people that pay to run these media outlets. It's not an it's not a mistake. It's not a coincidence that Tucker's program had so few advertisers. And I think some, that's what some people are going to point to is that they weren't necessarily making money with his show. Well, his show's kind of a loss leader. There's a lot of shows that didn't make money. Morton Downey Jr.'s show didn't make money. Rush Limbaugh's show for a lot of stations he was on, especially towards the end of his career, didn't make money. But they bring with them such a massive audience that it helps all the other shows make money. So I think that's uh, that's part of what you're seeing here. I mentioned uh, Bill O'Reilly. He was on the radio show Cats and Cosby last night, and he gave his theory as to why Tucker got the boot from Fox. If you watched 60 Minutes last night, you saw a guy named Ray Epps on, who flat out accused Tucker Carlson of ruining his life. And Epps is setting himself up for a major lawsuit against Carlson of Fox News. The story is that Tucker Carlson implied that Epps had something to do with fomenting the January 6th riot. And that lawsuit, after watching that 60 Minutes broadcast, it's coming. But even more damaging was a producer who worked for uh, the Carlson program who apparently has some tape, audio tape, of bad things being said. I don't know what they are. But she has already filed a lawsuit against Fox News and Carlson show. And her lawyers are saying, if you don't pay us a lot of money, we're going to make these recordings public. So in the face of all of that, and then Smartmatic lawsuit, shareholder lawsuits against the Fox um, company by people who hold their stock, they had to get out of Tucker. And that's what happened. Now, um, I don't buy that uh, necessarily. Megyn Kelly has given one of the best interviews I've heard analyzing the situation. And I find myself agreeing with everything that Megyn Kelly said. Megyn Kelly explained why she didn't think this Abby Grossberg lawsuit had anything to do with this. She was on uh, AM 970 in New York yesterday. There are reports that there was a um, a lawsuit by uh, Abby Grossberg 
who was a yep. producer on his show. And it had to do with, you know, um, just a hostile work environment. You think that plays into this at all? I don't. You know how many of those they get at Fox News? Yeah. I mean, you <laughs> oh, get a disgruntled do. producer who's throwing everything she can at Tucker to try to leave in a huff. She's been all over CNN. She's having her moment. And, you know, Tucker and Sean Hannity and one other talent were, they were sued, all of them were sued and accused of sexual harassment by two women a year plus, two years, can't remember the number, ago. Fox doesn't fire its talent because some disgruntled ex-employee sues and alleges terrible things. That's not them. Rupert loves to fight those fights. So I don't believe Abby Grossberg is alleging anything that upset them. There are some rumors, these are unconfirmed, um, that there may have been some sort of text exchange that may reflect negative comments by Tucker about management that could have been unearthed in connection with that lawsuit or another one. I don't know. I think the Murdochs have thicker skin than that and know that even top talent like Tucker might need the chance to just sound off in a text message about the boss. I just don't think Rupert's the kind of guy to say, oh, you said I was a bad man. You're fired. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with her. I don't think this Abby Grossberg lawsuit had anything to do with it. I think what she says, though, about what made Tucker so special and so unique, she says it far better than I ever could. And she says, rightly so, that Tucker Carlson was the bravest man on television. Tucker was the bravest man on television. Tucker was not a racist. Tucker said some incendiary things, for sure. I'm not going to defend every word he ever uttered. But the, if you actually spent the time to pour into the, the things he said that he was denounced as racist for, you'd be like, what? And the main thing was they said he was into replacement theory, that he was saying we were allowing all these immigrants to cross the southern border because they want to get rid of the whites. That's not what he said. He, he like Ann Coulter, like many people in the Republican Party, believes the Democrats are keeping an open border because they want future Democratic voters. <laughs> it's not about race or replacing one with another. Anyway, they wanted him gone. They'll celebrate his departure, but Tucker will emerge more powerful and I think with more money in his pocket as a result of all this. I agree with that, by the way. Both Megyn Kelly and Bill O'Reilly have done very well financially since leaving Fox. But let's say let's say Tucker Carlson chooses to just start a subscription podcast or a multimedia or a content provider, which includes a column, a podcast, and maybe a video commentary, similar to what O'Reilly does at BillOReilly.com. And let's say that he charges just $10 a month for that, okay? He's got 3.5 million viewers a night. Let's say only 10% of them, which is a low number. Let's say only 10% of them say, you know what, I'll pay 10 bucks a month to hear Tucker. Now, that's $42 million a year at a very conservative estimate. Now, let's say further that Tucker's got to pay $10 million in overhead costs and staffing and building out infrastructure and advertising, $10 million in that. He's still taking home $32 million in pure profit. So Tucker is going to be just fine. That's a lot more money than he's making now. Um, O'Reilly uh, told Katz and Cosby that uh, he thinks that Tucker's departure is going to hurt Trump in 2024. The importance of this story is far beyond the media and personalities. 
It's going to have a direct effect on the 2024 presidential election. Fox News, in my opinion, is going to diminish now. It's already skidding in the, in the ratings and has been, as I mentioned, for a few months. But now that's going to accelerate. The Murdochs don't want Donald Trump to be president again. They've made that quite clear. If you read the New York Post, you see that. Okay? So the MAGA people, which comprise a large percentage of the Fox audience, they're not going to hang around there. And Trump is going to lose a lot of exposure that he had in the past on Fox News because fewer people will be watching, and they don't want him to be president anyway, the management. That suppresses the Trump campaign. So that was an interesting analysis, which I hadn't heard from a lot of people. And now I'll leave you with this, and then we'll get to your calls. We also got the $1,000 Minute. Megyn Kelly does a very good job explaining why she liked Tucker. And she did a good job explaining, I think, and hitting the nail on the head of reasons why I also like Tucker's show. I don't know him as a person. Listen, I will be honest. I I haven't really watched cable news since I left. I I just find the whole industry very toxic and – not that informational, but I've seen enough of Tucker's show, just clips or occasionally channel surfing, that I know the kind of talent he is. And I'm the person who recommended him for that slot when I left. And, you know, he would tell you that publicly and has said so publicly. So I just think he's incredibly brave. And it's not that Tucker always got it right on these issues that he would take on. But, you know, he's like single-handedly the reason – People felt comfortable pushing back on some of the COVID overreaches early on. Everybody else is out there like, do your part. And Tucker was like, look at these fools shutting down beaches, cutting off basketball hoop nets. I mean, that was him. And pushing back on some of the early vaccine skepticism, but at the same time saying to the audience, this is serious. And flew down to Mar-a-Lago and said to Trump, this is serious. This is going to kill a lot of people. He, he was far more reasonable than he got credit for. And, um, I just think he's been very unfairly demonized, mm. and I, I also have seen them do that to people like Bill O'Reilly. Forget the sexual harassment stuff, but they, they said Bill was a racist. They said I was a racist. They said Tucker was a racist. I'm sure they'll say whoever takes over at 8 p.m. now is a racist. Like, this is what they do to you when you get power in a role at Fox News. So I hope your audience knows to take these claims against him with a healthy grain of salt. I agree with every word she said there, uh, tremendously, uh, tremendously. All right, a lot of people queued up to comment on this. Uh, tell you what, you can hold. We're going to play the $1,000 Minute next, and then I'll take your calls for the rest of the hour on this or anything else you want to comment on. Uh, if you want to try to win $1,000, be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And uh, those of you that are already on hold to comment on Tucker, you can. And then uh, we'll take your calls right after the thousand dollar minute straight ahead the other side of midnight with frank morano it's the other side of midnight with frank morano
Well, this is the other side of Midnight Rider. Uh, yours truly, Frank Morano. And we're going to see if we can't uh, make somebody a little wealthier by playing the... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Let us say hello to Vinny in Pennsylvania. Hello, Vinny. Hello. Vinny, have you heard this segment before? Yes. Okay, great. So you know what to do, right? Yep. All right. So uh, we'll get started if you're ready. Um <clears throat> Okay, make sure I have the questions queued up here. Brunch is a combination of what two meals? Breakfast and lunch. What country is the Eiffel Tower located in? Uh, France. What science fiction film series features a villain named Darth Vader? Star Wars. In Greek mythology, who is the king of the gods? Zeus. Who wrote the novel The Catcher in the Rye? Uh, oh, damn it. Oh, man. I can't remember. Oh, come on. Get, think about it. Uh, uh, there's two letters, right? That's um, the first name, yes. First letter, two, na- two letters. Uh, God damn it. I can't remember it, Frank. Uh, it's J- J.D. It. Salinger is the name that you were trying for. That's J.D. It, Salinger. Salinger. Uh, have you ever read Catcher in the Rye? I did for high school. I got you. Okay, I'm going to put you on hold, Vinny. I'm sorry you didn't win. You got up to question five. Uh, give Kenneth your information, and we will um, we will give you a consolation prize of uh, of some sort. So I am uh, I'm sorry you didn't win, but. You try again in the future, best you can do. Want to wish a happy birthday to Al Pacino, 82 years old today. Happy birthday, Al Pacino. Hank Azaria is uh, 58 years old today. My cousin Liz, Liz Morano Rogers, is celebrating her birthday today. Uh, If I forget to text her, then hopefully this shout-out that I've given her on the air will suffice. That is my Aunt Camille's daughter. You've often heard me mention my Aunt Camille, and uh, Liz is her daughter. Lex Howard, CEO of Balance of Nature, celebrating his birthday today. Very successful guy, only 36 years old. And I'll tell you, my son, Carmine, is officially 17 months old today. He was born 17 months ago, got the word, was on the air at the time. Uh, That's probably the only thing that could ever get me to leave in the middle of a show. And uh, happy birthday to you, son. Looking forward to seeing you in just a couple hours. Now, uh, before we continue with your phone calls, and if you want to comment on the Tucker Carlson situation or anything else we're talking about, give me a call, 800-848-9222, two open lines. I do spend a lot of time on this show talking about happiness and interviewing guests about happiness, whether it's Mike Rucker, whether it's Jeffrey Gurian or others, because I think it's important. And I think if you're dealing with issues related to sadness or loneliness, it's important. So I wanted to mention this. The Wall Street Journal had a very interesting poll that they published. And they looked at what very happy people have in common. And they followed up with the 12% of respondents in a Wall Street Journal survey who called themselves, quote, very happy. They reached out to people that said they're very happy and they asked, Why? Why are you happy? 
and they asked them what they were all about. And here are the traits that the happy people share. The, not the happy people, excuse me, the very happy people. So if you feel you could be a bit happier, maybe try and inject one of these one of these things in your life. Well, one is something a little out of your control, but one is companionship. 67% of the happiest people said that marriage was very important to them compared to 43% of overall respondents. Another one was religion. Religion. Two-thirds of very happy people characterize themselves as moderately or very religious. The overall share of people, less than half. One of the interesting things was they're closer to death. People over the age of 60 accounted for 44% of the happiest group, but represented only 30% of the total survey correspondence. And then, um, lastly, they go to the gym. Fitness was a common interest among very happy people. And that goes hand-in-hand with research we've seen and probably anecdotal examples in your own life of just... A little bit of uh, exercise can go a long way, not just to physically helping you out, but mentally and psychologically helping you out. You know what does not seem to matter to being very happy? And I was, I was happy to see this. What does not seem to matter to being very happy? Political party affiliation or avoiding following politics. The people that follow politics were just as unhappy as, and just as happy as the people that do follow politics. The Republicans, just as happy as the Democrats. So I was happy to see that. So that's what the happy people have in common. Companionship, religion, age, and exercise. So if you find yourself a little unhappy, maybe try some of those strategies. 800-848-9222. I'd love to know the answer to the question of why you think Tucker Carlson was fired. And this is a big story. We're going to be revisiting it all week as well. So if you don't get your comment in now, don't worry. We'll revisit this in the coming days. But this was one of those stories where everybody was commenting on it today. And I don't like to spend a whole lot of time being the guy the guy that comments on the story that everyone else is doing. I, I sort of like to go my own way. But um, this was a story that I do feel passionately about, so I did want to comment on it. Jerry is in Maryland. Hello, Jerry. Hey, how you doing? I'm hanging in there. The, the, it's it's very simple. It was part of the deal. They they got rid of Tucker. That was part of the deal. That's why they got off so light. Well, first of all, I don't consider um, you know almost a billion dollars uh, that light. Number one. Number two. Why wouldn't they have also then demanded the ouster of Janine Pirro and Maria Bartiromo? I don't know, but the thing was, was uh, well, Tucker was the, the big guy. He was the big gun. And basically, from what my understanding is that um, Murdoch turned the uh, fox over to his two sons, and his two sons leaned to the left. Well, that's well, at least one of them does. Uh, but I, I think that's I think that may be closer to the truth, Jerry. I think yeah. they don't like Tucker's brand of politics, and I think that might be at play here. You know, so often the movie network has come to represent real life. And in that movie network, why does Howard Beale change his tune? And then why do they keep him on the air even after his networks are struggling? 
So uh, about that, I don't buy that it was part of the uh, the settlement. Megyn Kelly did comment on that on uh, on AM 970. I almost never cite Gabe Sherman's reporting because in my experience, he's right 50% of the time and he's dead wrong 50% of the time. But he's been tweeting out some more details about the Fox thing with Tucker. And I happen to have some inside knowledge on it that confirms some of his reporting. So I'm going to believe the rest of it for tonight. And he's tweeting that Tucker was fired today by Suzanne Scott, the CEO, that she said it came from above and not much more than that. And that Tucker was surprised, was taken by surprise. His executive producer, Justin Wells, is also out, um, I believe, fired uh, along with Tucker. And I don't know the the reason uh, that, that he hasn't yet produced that. And all I can guess, Arthur, is that this was ultimately just too much for the, for the Murdochs, that in the wake of Dominion, they're being threatened with shareholder lawsuits. Uh, there is some speculation, and this is in some of the reporting, that um, a Tucker may believe this is all being done because the kids are going to take over the company that that or that they're going to they're going to sell it that they want to sell fox news and they they want to get rid of you know tucker who's a lightning rod that's gabe sherman again his reporting i don't know what the answer is but i don't believe it has to do with aoc i don't believe it has to do with the new york times obsession with tucker and i actually don't believe it has to do with the dominion lawsuit either because tucker was not if you were upset about what happened with dominion you'd be firing maria bartiromo and janine pirro not tucker Tucker's one of the only ones who went out and saved them on that, saying Sidney Powell is a liar, and I can prove it and don't believe her. So clearly there was something else afoot, and it's an earthquake in the media landscape. Yeah, and I agree. I agree with her. Her analysis to me sounds very, very sound. Uh, Charles is in Queens. Hello, Charles. Good morning. Good morning. First, I want to, if I may, I want to say about Dr. Carlson's firing but i want to inject something why i think um people that are happy to possess a certain uh, trait is that okay if i do that first well, I, I didn't i didn't even i didn't even understand what you were saying um oh, okay. you, you want to do I'm what saying, you know but people what people that are happy all have in common more oh or less. okay yeah what is that okay i'm saying children generally don't worry about the past don't uh, agonize about the past, and they don't really worry about the future. They're always running around happy like they were um, a heroine or something. Why? Because they don't worry about the future, think about the past. People that are able to, I don't know the word is, compartmentalize or departmentalize and zero in only on the moment what's happening, should that should definitely be, in my opinion, a factor about people that are happy. Don't you think? Okay, well, I, I could buy that. I can absolutely buy that, but I don't know that that's reflected in the in the polling. Real quick, though, Charles, what was your comment on Tucker Carlson? Okay, basically, my I haven't been too much involved in the news because of Passover and other things, but my guess was going to be a deal with with Dominion is they fire him, but obviously it doesn't seem that's the reason. But I would say the reason is five. There are five reasons, and they all probably played a factor. The fact that Fox doesn't want Trump. The fact that um, they know that they can fire the main, the main talent and still exist, and so on and so forth. There are quite a, they've probably all played some sort of a factor in, in the firing. There's a main reason. I, I can't speculate what that might be. Thank you, Charles. Larry. Yes, hi, Frank. Look, I, I would only say that Tucker was all over the place. Recently it came out, his comments that he hates Donald Trump. Now, I know the the Murdochs don't like that, but if if, uh, they, if, if Fox is going to be blamed, 
if Trump's campaign is uh, goes sour um, and uh, we lose and the Republicans lose the general election, maybe in the long run, Fox didn't want to be blamed because of of Tucker diminishing Trump's uh, star or something like that. But from my from my own perspective, I don't care anybody that's insensitive to the suffering of the Ukrainian people, of any people that's being bombed by a Hitlerian dictator. Okay, I have no sympathy for. All right, thank you, Larry. You know, um, first of all, don't people get tired of making everybody Hitler? Not everybody is Hitler. Only Hitler was Hitler. That's the first thing. Second, um, I don't. Uh, I don't think that's tr- that's true at all because the Murdochs. I don't think want Trump to win, even Rupert. So if Trump, if Tucker was somehow going to be blamed for Trump's demise, I don't think Rupert Murdoch would care. Let me get David in here because he's been holding, and then we'll do fifteen seconds of fame. Hello, David. Yes, good morning, Frank. Um, This is, I think, going to turn out to be another Bill O'Reilly type situation. Mm -hmm. This Grossberg lawsuit will never see the light of day. It will be settled, and the truth will never come out because just listening to Tucker Carlson, this man clearly has a problem with women. He's alleged to have made anti-Semitic comments, and I know for a fact that he is a lifelong racist. I can only imagine what kind of emails and text messages and recordings that woman has of him. And they must have been pretty damaging for Fox to cut loose their number one star. All right. And, uh, and I think – Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, if I just say one thing yeah, really quickly. Ahead. He will likely be replaced – by uh, oh, who is that guy that works? Jesse Waters, because Jesse Waters has all the same qualities as him, and and they could fit him right in. Thank you, David. Uh, who knows? We'll see. The one thing I do want to respond to, because like I said, we'll revisit this in the future. Tucker Carlson's not a racist. That's just not accurate. Fifteen seconds of fame in a moment. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Midnight by Stevie G and the Pizza Fanatics, available on iTunes for only 99 cents. A terrific song, which we're grateful to Stevie G uh, and his people for putting together. All right, without further ado, it's time for you to be heard for 15 seconds at 800-848-9222. Any subject is fair game. Any comment is fair game. As we embark on... Other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Rusty. Yes, Frankie. If I, if I criticize the Messiah Sid, would you only give me second, uh, 15 sec, uh, seven seconds of fame? 
you still got three more, Rusty. I'm the man. Raji. At 12 noon to 3 p.m., Bloomberg Radio provides very listenable programming while Curtis keeps regurgitating earlier segments and Greg Kelly is boring. E. Frank. Yes, uh, I just want to wish President Biden in his uh, announcement of his candidacy this uh, morning. Also, Barbara Streisand's birthday is today and mine's is tomorrow. God bless us all. Robert. Yes, I heard Governor Christie and New England College. He nailed Trump to the wall. And also, Tucker is really a brown shirt for Trump. Robert. Call, write, email your congressperson to make fentanyl a Schedule 1 drug, illegal as heroin. Stop Big Pharma. Cheech. Seventy years ago, Senator Joseph McCarthy was correct when he said we're engaged in a final all-out battle between communistic atheism and Christianity. What they did to him, they're doing to Trump. David. Yes, to quote James T. Kirk from The Undiscovered Country, how can you vouch? It's arrogant presumption to vouch for Tucker Carlson, Frank. Thank you. Brandon. Frank, don't be a cheapskate. Spring for the Twitter verification. Stretch those alligator arms a little bit. Thank you, Brandon. Uh, very quickly, Larry. David should be fired, should be cast off the air. He calls everybody a racist. He's an unsympathetic idiot. All right. Thank you for keeping your comments brief. All right. uh, Back tomorrow, God willing, you never know. Frank Morano, good day.